Well, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff. So come think with me. Uh, today's uh, a really fun episode. I have with me Chad McIntosh. And, uh, it's St. Patrick's Day when we're recording, so I wore my green. Uh, I, I think Chad's probably Irish, but I wore my green shirt. It's actually a, a, a shirt. Uh, it's a, a tree of mustaches. So it's kind of the, the Christmas tree theme, but... I don't have very many green shirts, so that's what we're left with. I'm excited to talk to Chad because he's done a lot of really fun work in social Trinitarianism, though I'm not sure if if we should even call it that. I don't know. We'll we'll talk about it. But uh, I'm stoked for it because it matches up with a project that I've been working on as well. Plus, Chad's just an awesome dude. So without further ado, let's get him in here. Chad, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, man. Hey, Parker. Thanks for having me. I love the show, so it's a pleasure to be here. And yeah, it, thanks. Uh, Scottish. Uh, Macintosh is Scottish. Scottish. Um, okay, good. All right. Okay. So I didn't. I didn't push that too hard here. Scottish. I'm a. I'm a Scotsman myself. I got some Scott in me. So. Do you? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I shouldn't have maybe made our background uh, shamrocks, but it will. <laughs> it, it will go along with um with kind of your aunt, your conception of the Trinity uh when we get right there. On. So, so yeah. we'll see. Um, but Chad, as as we get in here, I wanted to ask you about alligator snapping turtles because this is something we've bonded over uh, online before. Um, so you you have several alligator snapping turtles, is that right? Mm-hmm. You have two. Mm-hmm. Dude, like, when, when did you get those? Back in 2012, September 2012, they were, sh- they were hatched and shipped to me. So eight years ago. Um, yeah. I arranged it all, but it was my wife's idea for, for a birthday present uh, that mm-hmm. year uh, because I had uh, explained to her that um, I grew up uh, with a common snapper pet. Mm-hmm. And so one, yeah, my first year of graduate school is like our first apartment together. She was like, why don't you get a snapping turtle? And I was like, if I'm going to get a snapping turtle, I'm going to get an alligator snapping turtle. And so I contacted uh, the turtle man. Yeah. <laughs> Which you have had on yeah, your show before. Yeah, John Richards. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we emailed back and forth and he, we spoke over the phone. And he shipped me two baby alligator snapping turtles. They were both about the size of a little bit bigger than a quarter at the Mm -hmm. time. And I was just so flabbergasted when they actually arrived in the mail. They came in this little box Mm -hmm. that said something like caution live contents. And I was like, there's no way he just put these in this little cardboard box. That's this, that's, that's nuts. And I later learned that alligator snapping turtles having those as pets is illegal in New York. <laughs> so that actually added to sort of the exotic nature of yeah. them. And so I've had them for eight years and, and, and love them. How, how big are they right now? Oh, uh, the male is, is how, if I have something to reference, I'd say that the male's probably. Yeah. Maybe eight, eight inches, not, not counting the tail, just the right. shell, probably right. eight, eight by four or five, something like that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, dude. So, so I have, as, as some of my listeners will know, I have uh, four alligator snapping turtles and it's illegal here in Illinois. If you don't have the proper permits because mm-hmm. they're endangered species from the lower bottom, you know, third of, of Illinois or whatever, where they're 
naturally uh, coming up. Mm-hmm. But my one of my my big male is three years old and he's like ten inches. That's and wild. It's, it's yeah. stupid how big he is. Yeah. It's so. And I told my wife, I was like, you know, we'll be able to have him in a in a small tank for a while, and he outgrows that, and he outgrows that, and he got. And I'm like, this is not supposed to happen. This wasn't a trick. I'm not lying to you. You know, <laughs> like it's. I'm sorry. He's just a freak. So, uh-huh. Yeah, dude, I, I love him. Yeah. yeah, I think I asked you at one point. It's like, what what have you been feeding him? Because I I've seen that oh, they yeah, right. yeah. eat them up quickly by feeding them like rodents and frogs and things mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. So he he just eats um, mostly guppies his whole life because I have a breeder tank for guppies and uh, platies. Uh, I've done that as well, just just live bearing fish. But he's just he's just a freak. I don't really understand. It's just yeah, yeah. he's just weirdo. Yeah, we've we've fed ours almost nothing but comets and guppies. Mm-hmm. And for a while, we did we tried to do the the breeder tank for guppies, and it was so hard to keep the the adults from the, the young, because as you know, I'm sure you know that the adults actually wind up eating the young if you don't keep them separately. Yeah. Uh, And that just wound up being such a nightmare. So it is a nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. So I use this stuff called Java moss and the the babies hide in the Java moss when they're, when they're real young. And then I just feed the guppies like a ton. So they, they don't have any ability to eat the young. They're too (laughs) stuffed. But uh, the listeners are, are not here for for the snapping turtle talk, unfortunately. Uh, I also I grew up with turtles too. I had a, co- a common snapping turtle, so dude, yeah, similar trajectory there. I love that. Mm-hmm. We'll have to talk more about that. But uh, you did so. So moving on to philosophy, theology, kind of what uh, you have been uh, become known for because you're you're becoming a, a popular dude online, which is sweet. You did your MA and your PhD at Cornell. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Okay, and it's like one of those. You got your master's along the way type deals? Yeah. So I was accepted into the PhD program, but like somewhere along the line, I'm not even sure when you get your MA. Like I just got my MA in the mail one day. I was just like, oh, I guess I have an MA now. (laughs) I don't don't even know what, I'm sure I passed the requirements and they they make a big deal out of it, but I'm the kind of person that wouldn't know uh, about those requirements or or whatever. But yeah, apparently I got it along the way <laughs> <laughs> that's sweet um well d- dude how did you convince your uh doctor father there like your your doctoral advisor to let you work on any kind of trinity stuff i didn't uh when i first pitched a dissertation on the trinity to my committee to my advisor um my advisor and the director of graduate studies at cornell both asked me independently independently whether whether I might not be more suited for a theology program instead yeah. of a philosophy program, they just had no idea that there was this lively literature in philosophy hmm. uh, on the Trinity. So uh, as it turns out, though, that mo- most of my dissertation is only indirectly about the Trinity. Mm-hmm. So, but with intended applications that I make at the end, so it, it worked out okay. It's mostly yeah. metaphysics with with an intended application to the Trinity. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I love that. I I, uh, I hope none of my prospective uh, future advisors are, are watching this, but I hope to do something like very, very similar and just sneak in all the fun stuff to mm-hmm. like chapter three or four or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's great. I love that because you're, you're doing all the hard work of giving yourself these tools to use later uh, in, in your theology. That's right. Yeah. So as, as we get into kind of Trinity's talk, um, there's this there's this bifurcation of Latin and social trinities. Um, and some have said that's kind of artificial, you know, calling it Latin, whatever, but it's, it's what we have now today. 
Um, do you do you buy that bifurcation? And, and uh, even if you don't, can you explain what people mean by Latin and social trinities? Yeah. Well, just to stage set that, the doctrine of the chin, the doctrine of the Trinity is just that God is three hypostases mm. and one usia. Uh, or the Latin is tres personae una substantia, mm-hmm. which is commonly translated God as three persons or individuals in one being or substance. And all three of those persons is divine and at least deserves to be called God. So that's that's sort of the nutshell doctrine of the Trinity. And then we have this bifurcation between different ways of thinking about the Trinity. There's the Latin way and then there's a the social Trinitarian way. The Latin Trinitarians think God is just one self. Uh, there's just one first person perspective in God. There's just one I that relates to others, like a, as you, as as you know, Parker. I I relate to you right. in a in a certain way. There's just one I that relates to others in a certain way in, in God, according to Latin Trinitarians. Now, the challenge for Latin Trinitarianism is to try to explain how this single self can be tripersonal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one way of thinking about it, a very, very kind of popular, simple way of thinking about it, it kind of traces the origins of this, could trace to Augustine, is that the father has an image of himself in mind. Right. And this is a perfect image. And this perfect image of the father is is the son. So the son is like the mirror image of the father. The son, as a perfect image of a perfectly loving and just and beautiful being, uh, this image warrants the love and affection owed to such a perfect being. Mm-hmm. And the Holy Spirit then is identified with this relation of love and affection that exists between the Father and his image of himself, which is the Son. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of the Latin way of thinking about the Trinity. And you, you get certain philosophers today trying to come up with different ways of thinking about it. Uh, Left Al has his favorite way of thinking. Time of, travel, right? Right, right. Yeah. The, time, the time traveling rockets. The the persons are different temporal parts of God. Yeah. Well, I, we don't need to get into that. But but so that's Latin Trinitarianism. God is just one self. Um, and then the challenge there is to think about how this one self could yet be three persons. Right. Now, in contrast to Latin Trinitarianism, there's social Trinitarians who think that there are three distinct selves in God. There are three first-person perspectives in God, three eyes, as it were, like mm-hmm. centers of consciousness yeah. in God. And the challenge here is to try to explain how these three selves, identified with the persons of the Trinity, can be one single being. And I like this way of thinking about it. A nice way of thinking about social Trinitarianism is, is just as we are one soul with a mind, uh, the Trinity is a soul, an immaterial substance with three minds. God is a soul with three minds. I like that way of thinking about how social Trinitarians want to break it down. Now, social Trinitarianism is associated with the Greek-speaking fathers, the Cappadocians, um, such as uh, the Gregories and Basil, Mm -hmm. whereas Latin Trinitarianism is associated with Latin-speaking fathers like Augustine and Aquinas. I mean, of course, there are debates about uh, these, the historical accuracy of these associations. Right. And I think it's been pretty conclusively demonstrated that this distinction is not really accurate to draw between the Greek and the Latin fathers. Right. Because you have some Latin 
Latin Trinitarians among the social Trinitarian, well, right. you know, Greek speaking fathers, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's historically inaccurate. Uh, it, it's dubious for that reason. But as I've described the views, they're, they're useful labels. The, the titles have stuck. So for better or worse, it is what it is. Yeah. That's a great point. I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that. So my, my, uh, my audience will notice that when I'm speaking with more of a, a Latin person, I probably seem to agree with them more. And when I'm speaking with more someone on the social side, I probably agree with them more. And that's not me being duplicitous. Well, maybe it is, but it's just because I, I find both like really convincing based on uh, who I'm talking to based on the arguments. And it seems to me, someone's going to get upset by this, but like the, the historical guys, the guys who are more bound by history and and I would say bound sometimes in like a, a negative way where they can't get past history. They want to say this is what the church has always said. This is and and so yeah, it may, it may be a mystery. It may be confusing to think of one consciousness in God, and but that's what everyone said. So we have to keep saying that. And if you want to, you know, traipse all over history, that's on you, and and that's your problem. And then a lot of the the social folks that I know are more. I know this is this is painting with a broad brush were more philosophically informed and they're saying like well what do you mean by person then dude because you don't have three persons there in your latin view and and so uh internally i'm just being ripped apart but i really like your view uh and so i want to i want to motivate that really quick with with something that i've done in a paper to try and uh, i i, I kind of hold more to like crisps and james anderson's kind of uh, trinitarian mysterianism um, which is not super impressive. It's just, yeah, it's a mystery, but it's warranted. And so I tried to motivate this with, uh, with a consciousness discussion because I was studying philosophy of mind at the time. But hmm. um, with Nagel's uh, consciousness criteria, there's a what it's likeness. And so just asking you know, four questions. Is there something that it's like to be the father? Is there something that it's like to be the son? Is there something that it's like to be the spirit? And is there something that it's like to be God? And I think that Christians should probably say yes to all of those, right? Like there's something that it's like to be the father in a different way than it is to be the son. Otherwise you don't have any distinction between the persons and the spirit, right? And there's something that it is to, there's something that it's like to be God. And whether you say that's just, you know, in three ways or whatever you, like God is conscious as well. Like you can pray to God. You can direct your prayers without having to pick out the father or the son maybe. What do you what do you make of that um, criteria? Does that just fall apart real quick, or no? I think you're right that there is something it is like to be the Father, Son, and Spirit, and th- this this phrase "there's something it's like" is often associated with like phenomenal conscious states, right? Right. States like it's some there's something it's like for me to taste a strawberry. Hmm. Uh, there's something it's like for me to see red, and I think persons or at least some kind of persons we'll get to this later they are phenomenally conscious in this way there there is something it is like to be me mm-hmm. i think that's true of the father son spirit i don't think that's true of of the triune god okay i don't think there's the the, the triune god has phenomenal states mm. of and this this goes to the distinction between the different kinds of persons that i think there are that doesn't mean the the, the triune god is not a person that just yeah. means He's not the kind of person that has phenomenal, phenomenally conscious states. Okay. That really helps me understand your position, actually. That's that's super duper helpful. I just got a ton of clarity from that. So so let's let's keep going into it then. Um r- actually, real quick. So can we say on your on your uh conception, can we say that God is uh one person and three persons? I know you want to clarify that, but 
but can you say that God is one person and three persons? Yeah, absolutely. That's that's the key virtue of my proposal. Yes. I love that so much because so often people will say God is personal, right? And and especially when you emphasize the three persons, uh, if you're on the more social side and say, no, God's personal. You can't do that. What the heck? That's a clear contradiction. And this is something because I, I follow Cornelius Van Til pretty strongly. And, and he says, you know, God is one person. God is three persons. And people are like, blatant contradiction. How dare you? You know, you just, and he's like, well, not in the same way. Of course not. But yeah, but, what what is his view then? Because, I mean, it's it's been acknowledged more more so in footnotes than in text that you could have this view as long as you acknowledge the a distinction between kinds of persons. Yeah. Uh, so what what is Van Til's view there? I don't know. I'm well, not- I think it's closer to yours actually. I think that it's um, because he he relies on perichoresis, and some have have found that in uh, in his reading of Hodge. I think it it, it follows from his reading of Bavink, but that there is a, a really uh, strong doctrine of perichoresis such that, yeah, there's God is one person through through perichoresis, but there are still three persons in God. And he goes with, with a, a mystery there, and that's kind of why I'm a mysterianism. And yeah, there's some mystery, but that's because he hasn't read Chad McIntosh yet. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm also happy. I, I, so I don't know Van Til's view of the Trinity. Actually, I, I, I did read a book on Van Til's view of the Trinity years ago. And I remember being so frustrated with it. I just, I, I threw it out. It's one of the few books I actually like threw out of my library. Yeah. Don't, <laughs> don't mention the name. Cause I think he's probably been on the podcast, but. Okay. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I'm also happy to acknowledge mystery at some point. Mystery, right. mystery is about God's nature. But what I take philosophers to be doing when they philosophize about the Trinity is not logically dissecting God, God's very being or essence and saying like, Oh, this, this is how he is in the same way that like a scientist would after dissecting an insect. Right. Um, Rather philosophies are articulating models of God that are biblically faithful and logically coherent. And, and we give our best reasons for thinking how God's nature could be within the acknowledged limitations of our thought and language. Yeah. Um, but I don't think there's any reason like James Anderson does. Uh, I don't think there's reason to think that there's some impenetrable wall of mystery that prevents us from doing this. Um, but if, if I were to to plop for, for some sort of Mysterian view, it would definitely be Anderson's. I I like, I like his view. It's very sophisticated and and well argued. Yeah. Well, and, and I, uh, what he, what I take to be his model and Chris's model is, um, Look, even if this is shrouded in mystery, even if there is some because of incomprehensibility from, uh, you know, the divine creature relation, then it wouldn't be uh, unreasonable to believe in the Trinity. I can still believe in the Trinity even without a model. That's not Mm -hmm. to say that there's not a model that further helps explain the mystery, which Mm -hmm. is, again, why I want to talk to you, man, because I think your model does a really good job. Um, So let's let's actually jump into that. So. One of the papers that you sent me, God of the Groups, uh, is is on your take on, on social Trinitarianism. I think it was 2015. Is that right? 15 or 16. Right. I remember, yeah. And and you get into uh, different types of, of persons, intrinsic persons and functional persons. So I thought before we jumped into that, we could talk about like what what is – we could define person. What What is a person? Well, yeah, that's a tricky question. Before we get to that mm-hmm. – the whole motivation behind the paper, it sounds like what's kind of going on with you and, totally. and why you want to, why you're attracted to Van Til's view. Mm-hmm. And it's that 
I think the most serious objection to social Trinitarianism is not that it's a form of tritheism or whatever, things like that. It's that social Trinitarianism allegedly implies that God is not a person, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there is no single person to whom we pray or or refer to or with singular pronouns like he or you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on God's side, there's no single person that could speak from a first-person perspective like I and me. I brought Israel out of Egypt. No, there's like if, if God is not a single person, all that language about God being a single person, us relating to God being a single person, is fictional. It's yeah. false. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that really disturbed me, actually. I was like, well, I, I mean, my like my entire thought life and, and, and discourse about God is just fictional and false. Right. That can't be right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. I think I think something has to be said about this I, because we do so naturally relate to and think about God, pray to God yeah. uh, as a single person. Now, well, real quick, Chad, is that is this a good time to bring up Tuggy's objection then? Or well, should we wait? Yeah, let's wait because okay. uh, that that requires a little bit more stage setting about like personhood and so forth. Okay, cool. Uh, but this is Dale Tuggy's chief objection to right. social trinitarianism, and he, and he says, for all its lovely virtues. This is the death knell for social trinitarianism, or something like that, something to that effect. Yeah, and uh, uh, so uh, I think he's right. I think this is a, a big problem, and social trinitarians haven't really wrestled with it. Mm-hmm. What, what they have said in response is is just that. Well, the persons of the Trinity, they, they're they're they act. In, in such a harmonious way, they think in such a harmonious way that basically we can treat them as if they were a person, mm-hmm. but they're not. Well, I'm like, no, you can't do that or else our, our language, our discourse about God still remains entirely fictional. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can't just rest easy with the thought that we can treat God as if he is a person. No, I want to say let's treat God as a person, as, yeah. as we so naturally want to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I, yeah. I love that, dude. And that's that's something that was really unsatisfying to me as I got into Trinitarian uh, philosophical theology. Mm-hmm. And just this idea that some, some would say, well, we're, we're picking out one of the persons of the Trinity as we're praying. Mm-hmm. And so even when you say, you know, God save me or something like that, it's, well, maybe you... It, Maybe you didn't mean this, but God answers uh, mis mislabeled uh, male, and so it was really the father. You know, the father took that prayer, and other yeah. times as a son. But yeah, and I, they they were way better than that, right? I'm caricaturing them, but super unsatisfying. So oh, I totally get it. And and uh, bef- before I came up with this view or anything like that, or, or really wrestled with it, I I wanted to take God as Trinity seriously in my in my personal and devotional life, and. I found this book called Worshiping Trinity. Hmm. Last name is Perry. I forget the first name, but it is an exercise in trying to tailor your your devotional life to the each and each individual member of the Trinity. Yeah. And and I tried to discipline myself to do that for a while, and it was just so awkward. I I just couldn't. There were just times when it just felt so unnatural. So I, yeah. yeah, I think something more needs to be said here. Yeah. And all the practical theologians are pulling out their hair right now. And that's what we're supposed to do. We write books on that. Yeah. Oh, we get it, guys. Uh-huh. Um, was well, something else that you mentioned that we'll get into, but you, you talked about how our, even our, um, our arguments for God should be, you know, Trinitarian. You, you mentioned that in, in one of your uh, interviews or books, something I was reading. And I was like, dude, we are connecting on so many levels here. I love this. Um, so we'll get into that in a little bit, but uh 
can we return to uh, like what what is a person? What is a person? Yeah, it's a yeah. tricky word and has a uh, the concept of personhood has a very murky conceptual history. Uh, and well, I mean, first, I mean, you, you, we have to acknowledge that there are merely legal or fictional persons, mm-hmm. entities recognized as persons, quote unquote, for the sake of like legal convenience or treatment and things exotic as exotic as like boats and rivers, uh, yeah, have been, yeah, have been the afforded. Amazon. Yeah. I think maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I know there's at least a couple rivers in China. (laughs) The legal status of personhood. Now, obviously when you ask what is a person, uh, you're, you're really asking what is a real person? I want to know what a real person is. Not, Mm -hmm. not like a, not a, this persona ficta type thing. Yeah. Um, and here's what I think a real person is. It's anything that meets sufficient conditions of real personhood. Okay. Mm -hmm. What are those? Well, I think uh, anything that is morally responsible, anything that has free will, uh, and anything that has a rational first-person perspective, Mm -hmm. uh, anything that has those conditions meets those conditions. That's enough to be to be considered a person. To be to be uh, that's that's sufficient for personhood. Yeah. Um, Do so. This might set things up weirdly, but do you is consciousness part of that? There are different kinds of consciousness. Uh-huh. There are normal conscious states, we could just describe as mental states. Mm-hmm. And I think animals have conscious mental states. Mm-hmm. So consciousness, just as such, excuse me, I don't think is is sufficient for personhood. Now, phenomenal consciousness, yeah. that's different. Phenomenal consciousness is not just having a conscious state. I think most philosophers are agreed that phenomenally conscious states, you have to have sort of a rational first person perspective that sort of turns inward and can assess its own conscious states. Yeah. Like a, so, like a self-consciousness. It's yeah, like, it has a reflective aspect to it. Yeah, that's right. So, so there's this uh, meta conscious state or self-conscious state that I think is the step up from just mere consciousness. That's that gets into personhood territory. So is that a is that a sufficient condition? Is that or is that a necessary condition? I guess of of personhood. Uh, I don't know. <sighs> Again, it gets complicated because yeah. you know you don't want to say like a comatose, right? Is self conscious. There's a sense in which they're self conscious in the sense that they have like a nature mm-hmm. uh, that, if functioning properly and all that stuff, they would be self conscious or or fetuses. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's complicated ordinarily. So I don't know if I want to say necessary, but definitely sufficient. Okay. Okay. Cool. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. That's great. Okay. Yeah. This is this, the personhood stuff is so tricky, especially because then you bring up those kind of conversations, and we are Christians. So we take you know the the imago dei pretty seriously, and so we don't want to have any kind of theory that's going to destroy uh, exclude certain people from the image of God if they're actually image of God. So I, I feel you there and it's, it's always tricky reading through personhood stuff and trying to pin down a theory. Um, well, let's, yeah. let's jump into uh, intrinsic and, and functional. Right. So I, I distinguish two kinds of persons, real persons, uh, intrinsicist and functional. Mm-hmm. And this distinction, I kind of cash it out in my own way, but this distinction I got from Christopher List and Philip Pettit's book on group agency. Mm-hmm. This is their 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 way of uh, excuse me, 
this is their distinction. Th- th- their terms are a little bit different. So intrinsicist and functional persons. An intrinsicist person is a person that meets these sufficient conditions of personhood just by virtue of their intrinsic nature. Okay. Their nature to, or to, it's in their nature essence to be free, morally responsible, uh, have a rational first person perspective, self conscious, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Now, me, you, angels, demons, uh, I think comatose patients and fetuses are all examples. Uh, I mean, if, if there are like intelligent extraterrestrial aliens, I think the, the, they would count yeah. as intrinsicist persons. Now, contrast this sort of person with what I'm calling a functional person, mm-hmm. which is a real person, but they meet, but they are person because they meet sufficient conditions of personhood, not because of what they are by nature, but because of their function alone. It's their behavior that matters, not their mm-hmm. intrinsic nature. Yeah. They behave in such a way that they're morally responsible, free, rational, and, and so on. So examples here would be like robots. Um, perhaps one day you could have robots that behave in so sophisticated a way that we should accord them moral responsibility or, or, or free will, uh, at least in like a compatibilist sense mm. uh, or a rational first person perspective. Or another example would be, uh, someone who has multiple personality disorder, uh, one of their alternate personalities. Yeah. Now, if you read some of the clinical literature on multiple personality disorder, it's some of the most interesting and fascinating stuff you could you could read up on. But some of these alters, these alternate personalities, they have their personalities are so robust and distinct from like the actual persons that right. it's hard not to see them as almost a distinct person. But they wouldn't be like a what I'm calling an intrinsicist person. Uh, you like you wouldn't like uh, apply to the government to, to to get their own like social security number or anything. Right, like right. And um, they didn't just magically grow like if you're mm-hmm. a Cartesian dualist or if you're any kind of dualist, they didn't grow like another substance. Right, yeah. right. That's right. So there's somehow this distinct personality that's overlapping this intrinsicist person. Hmm. And I think I think a good way to think think of multiple personality disorder is is to say that there are multiple functional persons overlapping a single intrinsicist person. Yeah. Um, and another example, uh, which I'll argue is, is groups. I think groups can, can, or possibly might be functional persons, yeah. um, meet sufficient conditions of, of personhood by okay. virtue of function, but not nature. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, you, you triggered me a little bit with the robot conversation cause that I, I've obsessed over that for a while. Um, but just, yeah, thinking through, you know, Cyril's argument, Chinese room and, and different various different, uh, arguments against, uh, the idea of strong AI, right? Mm-hmm. That, that, that there could be a first person perspective to a robot, but you're, it, the criteria here is more the behaviorist criteria of like the Turing test of like, well, it's, it's functioning yeah. as if, um, but, but again, I, I don't think you like the language of as if, right? Like you, I, I think that's something you didn't want to say. It's not as, as an as if person, it's something stronger than that. Well, the as if, language here would just be they're functioning as if they were an intrinsicist person. Okay. But they're not. But uh, if the behavior becomes so sophisticated, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, think of, uh, there are a lot of sci-fi examples of where androids become effectively indistinguishable from human beings. Mm-hmm. What's the, what's the recent show that this was, this was really dramatized to great effect Westworld. Okay. I think I've only seen a few episodes. I've heard that. Yeah. 
but anyway, uh, I, it's conceivable to me that there be robots that are that do reach a level where, even though they're not intrinsic as persons, they don't they lack the intrinsic nature of of a being that's rational, free, morally responsible uh, by essence. Nonetheless, I think it would be appropriate to treat them as morally responsible agents, as hmm. uh, and certainly treat them as having a first person perspective. Uh, and at least meeting conditions of compatibilist free will. Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, that that's entirely conceivable. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. I don't want to chase that one too much. Um, but, but I want to go, I want to go on to this idea of group agents and group agency, uh, because I think that that can get us down to, well, it, it gets us where we need to go. So, uh, you're, if I'm not mistaken, you are a group agency realist. Is that right? Yes. I think I am. I mean, okay. I don't, I kind of just want to say that group agency realism is possible. Okay. I don't know if I want to commit myself to it's being actual. Okay. I, I, don't know. I don't know. No, that's a good point. So um, a, as we get into this, we, again, we got to define our terms. So what, what in your mind, what is agency? Okay. So anything that's a person is an agent. Mm -hmm. Agency is a lower bar to meet than personhood. Yeah. So if there can be group persons, you have to show that there can be group agents first. So what it, what is an agent? An agent is anything that, one, has representational states about how reality is. Mm -hmm. So I can – I see the external world like out there. It's, re it's represented a certain way to me in my mind. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, it also has to have motivational states about how it wants reality to be. So I see the world the way it is. It's represented to me in a certain way. And I also have to have motivational states about how I want the world to be, uh, like desires, for example. Yeah. Um, this pen is in front of me. I see that the world is that way. I want the pen to be over here. Uh, so I have representational state. I have a motivational state. Now, I also have to have the ability to process and to act in a way to get those two different states to match. Mm -hmm. So I see the pen. I want the pen to be elsewhere. So I can processing those states and I can act so as to move the pen to get it where I want. So those three conditions, uh, representational states, motivational states, uh, and the ability to process those states and act to get those states to match, that's what an agent is. Um, now, it's pretty – that's a pretty wide understanding of, of what an agent is. Uh, mm -hmm. So bugs are agents in this sense. Animal alligator snapping turtles are agents. That's in right. this. Um, actually, you know, when I was writing this paper, I was giving an example of agents. I used my snapping turtles as an example. Oh man, that's great. Well, a reviewer for the paper was such, it was such a jerk. They were just like, I don't care about your pets. Just get to the point. So I was like, Jesus, you know, man, was it the second reviewer? I don't remember. It's always the second reviewer. Oh, second reviewer. Yeah, but so, so I deleted that. But anyway. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Bugs, animals, snapping turtles, humans are all agents in this sense. And I think yeah. uh, it's very plausible that some robots even today meet those conditions hmm. of agency. I think, yeah. uh, for example, uh, uh, the self-driving cars. I think it's it's quite plausible that those meet these conditions of agency. Hmm. If they don't, then it, I think it's just around the corner that yeah, we have. they will, they yeah. will. Yeah, Th it's funny you bring up the the your snapping turtles and motor. So that that's kind of freaked me out a little bit about my understanding of the philosophy of mind because 
uh, I was looking at my big guy, Brutus, and he would arrange the rocks in his tank uh, to make a funnel. And then he'd sit at the end of the funnel, open his mouth. And for those who don't know, he's got a little vermiform uh, tongue lure. Mm-hmm. And all the fish would be funneled in there right into his yeah. mouth. And I was like, okay, there's something going on here. And I don't know if it's instinct. I don't think he has abstract thoughts, but he, I, maybe I just have to speak about it this way, but he had intentions mm-hmm. and he acted on those in order to make this funnel. You know, it's crazy, you know, and it, and it really messed with, with my conceptions. I, yeah. I noticed my turtles do the same thing. They'll, they'll, they'll move the, the props in there. It, it's, it's a losing battle to try to get the props to stay where you want yeah, them, right. but they'll, they'll arrange them and then they'll, they'll basically make themselves a blockade mm-hmm. and my turtles, they'll put their, they'll open their jaws uh, right up against the glass. Yeah. Uh, and they'll just like funnel the fish right through. They have to go to this narrow passage. Boom. Right. Mm-hmm. When they go through, it's, it's really cool to watch. It is so cool. So, so yeah. So turtles, alligator snapping turtles at least are, uh, are agents because it's a, it's a lower criteria to me. It's a lower bar. Than, than persons you, you wouldn't say they're persons would you no okay because they don't fit all the other criteria okay just right. checking here um okay so how can how can a group because we got we got animals and they're lower but how can a group satisfy these conditions for for agency yeah philosophers have argued i think pretty convincingly that multiple people can form a group that meet these conditions and Mm -hmm. and the group becomes an agent unto itself with representational motivational states and actions of its own that can't just be reduced down to those of its members. Mm -hmm. I'd like to use this, this example. Imagine a socially hip restaurant called Organicopia uh, that opens up right down the street from you in in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, it's, it's goal is to cater to the local hipster population. So it's got kale milkshakes. It's got the pine nut salads, black bean burgers. It's got those little hand knit uh, uh, sweaters for their French presses. (laughs) Uh, It's got, it's got everything right. Uh, All locally sourced and overpriced, of course. Of course. So uh, now suppose all the people that work at Organicopia, including the owner, including the owner himself are, ravaging meat eating bacon loving trump supporting capitalists okay yeah so clearly as a restaurant organicopia has a certain mission and values that can't be reduced down to the mission and values of its employees mm-hmm. but let's just say that they are good employees and they work hard together to to uh on organicopia's behalf to realize its missions its its mission and values so the point is Organicopia is a real part of the community over and above its employees and owner and not just some fictional entity. It's a real agent. Uh, it's a group agent. It has representational states, motivational states, and the ability to process and act, although through its members, on those states to, to realize its vision and, and uh, its vision and, and values and so forth. Yeah. Okay. So um, I think in like an intrinsicist person, those states would be internal to the person they're in, in that person's mind. Do these, mm-hmm. do these um, like the mission statement and all those kind of things uh, in Organicopia, do they have to exist somewhere? Do they need to be on a computer or something like that? Is that part of this or not really? There's some debate about this in the literature on group agency realism. Like where do we locate these states? Right. Uh, at least in humans, intrinsicist persons, these representational states are just beliefs. Right. Yeah. Motivational states are desires. Well, for groups, well, so you have some group agency realists who think that 
the group's beliefs and desires overlap with the members group uh, beliefs and desires. So mm-hmm. my, or at least collectively our beliefs and desires as members of a group uh, are the subvenient base of the group's beliefs and desires which yeah, they, on the members supervene on the members. Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's one possibility. But a problem with that is, well, you can have groups that have exchange of members and what if like, the group disbands and then someone else reforms the group. Where, yeah. where do all, where, where does the motivational and, and representational states go in the absence of those members? Mm-hmm. A group can get like resurrected, you know, after being disbanded for a while. Uh, yeah. Does it exist? Does the, does the states of the group exist somewhere out in the ether? Is it on a computer? Is it yeah. on like a charter document? I don't know. That's, that's yeah. a, it's a tricky question that group agency realists kind of differ over. Yeah, that's that's interesting. It reminds me of a Swinburne paper about uh, like like the true church. He wrote and he, he talked about this. And he t- he brought up like a chess club, and how you know if there's like discontinuity for like tw- twenty years, and then someone who is not part of the founding chess club and didn't have any kind of uh, direct connection in the lineage takes up the charter and wants to continue running with it. It's not really the same group. So the, yeah, there's there's all this like weird, interesting. I think he I think he was uh, I think that kind of led him into his new. Uh, I think he's Orthodox now, and I think that was kind of part of it, hmm. um, which is interesting. It's totally off topic, but it's it's similar in that like there's all this. It's a live debate on yeah. groups and and charters and yeah. such, and, and it gets compli- gets into complicated waters too about like the persistence conditions of groups. Yeah. So yeah, I mean that's it. It, it, it does it does get very complicated. Yeah. Well, but, so yeah. yeah, go ahead, go ahead, Chad. I guess for our purposes, I'm just happy to say that the groups representational motivational states supervene on those of its members. Okay. Um, can, can you just explain real quick about like, uh, like group free will then? Like, yeah. Yeah. Obviously if groups have free will, the only sense in which a group agent could have free will would be in a compatibilist sense Okay, where, where free just means to act freely just means that, uh, you act in a way that's sufficient to be morally responsible, even mm-hmm. if determined. So since a group can only act via its members, a group's a, a group agent's actions would be determined by its members. Yeah. But the group's actions are still distinct from its members, though. And that's that's the important point. Now, here's an example. If an employee uh, – let's go back to Organicopia. If an employee buys produce for Organicopia from the local farmer's market – it would be disingenuous of him to then go boast his hipster friends that, oh, I buy from the local farmer's market. No, what's true is that he buys on behalf of Organicopia mm-hmm. from the farmer's market. Uh, you know, he, he does his own shopping, let's say, at like Costco or something. Yeah, right. So his actions at the farmer's market are not properly his. Uh, that that organicopia's actions are mediated by the members by the employees doesn't seem to make a relevant difference yeah so uh, i mean after all my my own actions are mediated by my neurons and Mm -hmm. by my muscles and so forth yet it is i myself and not my neurons or muscles who are acting the uh, who is the proper subject of action and consequently uh moral responsibility for those actions so it's the same with groups the only difference is that because a group agent's actions are mediated by the agents, by, by its members, praise and blame 
often, but not always, is attributable to both the group and the members at once. Whereas for me, uh, no blame gets attributed to like my neurons or my muscles. It just gets attributed to me. Yeah. Um, no, that's great. I think that's a really interesting point. I have like Ned Block's um, Chinese nation argument in my mind, but I, it keeps, I keep on slapping it down because that has more to do with like consciousness arising out of a bunch of electrodes and stuff. And this is more about we're talking about group agency and, and this this employee is acting on behalf of the company and using company money. He's not using his own money or her own money. And so it's an extension of the, the company when it's acting, when he or she is acting in that manner. And so thus far, you know, in so far as they're yeah, representing the company, I know that someone out there is going to be thinking about like group uh, or hive mind. Are you familiar with that, that terminology at all? the terminology but i, I is this I, a hive mind type situation or maybe you, it's a vague concept you could think of it that way i mean hive minds typically have they're associated with like one central agent that's got like a controlling yeah. it controls like a, a multitude of like you think of like a beehive controlled by the queen or or a great example of the hive mind is in like the enders game uh series where yeah all these uh like drones alien drones are controlled by like a queen drone or a queen a queen alien yeah it's not really i don't think of it as a hive mind thing because the agents themselves are still agents unto themselves they're not just uh drones they're not they're not just unthinking things the other thing is these conditions of agency while they're general they're not so broad that just anything can meet them Okay. So, like Ned Block's example of uh, all the all the people of China working together to try to realize some conscious state or something, uh, I'm I'm very dubious that uh, a great multitude of of individual agents could work together to 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 produce a a group mind, uh, a a group consciousness or or a group right. agent. Um, I think there's some sweet spot if, if group agents are possible, there's some sweet spot of a finite number of, of group uh, of agents that can work together in such a way and achieve such a harmony as to, is to get a, an, uh, an agent out of it. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a uh, really, the first part about hive mind is really, really helpful and clear. So uh, in, in a hive mind situation, maybe day after tomorrow, one of the best sci-fi and underrated sci-fi movies there, there's a, the queen alien or an ender's game that's the intrinsic person and all the others are maybe functional persons yeah, that's Whereas right. in this situation it's completely reversed where all the persons are intrinsic and the, the functional is kind of emergent maybe or something like that yeah you there are different again there there's differences on on how you want to see the relation between yeah the group agent and the members some see it as supervenience some see it as constitution some see it as emergence okay uh, I think there's at least one person out there arguing that it's grounding. So there are different, okay. there are different relations there, but uh, I like that example. Yeah, exactly. I, I hadn't thought of that, that a hive mind would be an example of, uh, well, at least a hive mind and like the examples you gave would be an example of one intrinsicist person having sort of like a mind control over yeah. functional persons. Yeah, I think yeah. that's right. Or um, actually, well, I don't, I have to say it now, but like uh, WandaVision, is this a spoiler for did are you gonna watch I, that? I watched. I, I have. I'm not familiar. No. Okay. 
So for other people, WandaVision, uh, boom, it just helped you out with the whole series. But uh, okay, so another another interesting point, Ned Block's uh, Chinese nation argument is arguing that you will not have a functional person who has phenomenal consciousness arise out of the all the members of the Chinese nation. And that's something that we kind of alluded to already with the Trinity in that you would say, while you could call God a person, there is not a phenomenal consciousness to God. That's so, right. no, so no problem. You're, you're still not, you know, stepping on Ned Block's toes or anything like that. That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Sweet. Um, so then you have this idea of ideal groups versus unideal groups. And I thought this was important too, to, to maybe flesh out. Um, so Brandon Rickenbaugh, Rickenbaugh doesn't, doesn't come after us. He's, I, I love Brandon. He's, he's great. And I defer to him on a lot of stuff. So, is the Trinity like an ideal group in, in I guess, uh, organicopia mm-hmm. is this, is it, can it actually be a functional person or is it just, is it like an analogy? And if they were an ideal group, then maybe they would, would give rise to a, a functional person. Yeah. This is again, another one of those examples where you see the philosophers arguing with each other about whether, there actually are examples of group agents that actually meet conditions of agency, mm-hmm. or whether it's just possible. Yeah. And I think it's co- pretty clear to see how it's possible, whether there are, it's another question. Okay. And it's an empirical question. Um, at least as it concerns like corporations and, and restaurants and, and, and chess clubs and so forth um, as we find them here. And, Let's let's just say that you're not convinced. Let's with uh, Brandon Rickabaugh, you're not convinced that there are any group agents. Mm-hmm. Now that's obviously distinct from whether there can be, right. and that, that's all I really need is that there can be. Yeah. So the view up to this point should be clear: is that the Father, Son, and Spirit are intrinsicist persons who make up a functional person, the Triune God. So even if you're not convinced that mundane groups like corporations or whatever can can meet these conditions of agency or personhood. Uh, that's no reason to think that an ideal group can't, and and uh, the Trinity, if it's nothing, it's 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 an ideal group, right? It, mm-hmm. it certainly uh, uh, being as epistemically and functionally unified as it is, mm-hmm. in this especially tight way, in a synchronous manner, if anything can meet the conditions of group agency and personhood, it will be the Trinity. Yes, dude, amen. I love that so much. So so even yeah, even if you want to argue against corporations being. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, uh, functional persons. There, there is. It's it's conceptually possible in a ideal group, and that's you know if you yeah. now now you'd have to say well maybe I don't think the Trinity is three centers of consciousness, and so they couldn't be an, an ideal group. But you could see if the Trinity were three centers of consciousness, then it would be an ideal group, and so yeah. we can keep going on further. So don't you know just beg the question against the three centers of consciousness from the start. Yeah, that's right. I love it. I love it so much. Yeah, as long as you have that possibility, this initial objection that God is not a person just vanishes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't know if this is a great place to bring it up, but like you, you dealt with this question: why not uh, uh, quad quaternity? You know, so why Trinity and not quaternity or something like that? Um, is, is this a good spot to get into that? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah so, so why not? Yeah. Yeah. The concern would be. Look, we've we've solved this philosophical problem facing social trinitarianism, but we've just created a theological problem in its wake. Uh, we, we've we've kind of jumped out of the philosophical fr- uh, frying pan and into the theological fire. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I don't think so. I, I, I recall I distinguished two different kinds of persons, uh, real mm-hmm. persons, intrinsicists and functional. The view is that the father, son, and spirit are intrinsicist persons who make up one functional person, the triune God. And this is perfectly consistent with Orthodox teaching on the Trinity, which is just that there are three hypostases in one usia. Mm-hmm. Now, hypostasis is what I'm calling an intrinsicist person. Mm-hmm. And on my view, there's just three and only three hypostases in one and only one usia, just as orthodoxy requires. Yeah. Beyond that, the doctrine of the Trinity is totally silent. Orthodoxy is totally silent on whether or not these hypostases together can come together to, to form a person of a different kind, what I'm calling a functional person. So it's, it's, it's entirely consistent with, with Orthodox teaching about the Trinity. So uh, something that, that is, is also uh, contentious in these uh, Latin versus uh, social debates is this idea of wills. And so, you know, some, some of the uh, creeds or confessions will talk about having one will. There's mm-hmm. one will in God. And people go, look, you social guys have three wills. That's not okay. And, and so they go, well, yeah, well, maybe if, if you do buy into that, you might go, well, maybe the creeds are wrong. You know, they weren't infallible. It's not scripture. So whatever. But on your conception of functional persons, they can, uh, a functional person can have one will as well. So in the Trinity, God would have one will. So each person of the Trinity would have their own in, intrinsicist uh, personal will. Is that right? Yes, I think that's right. But it might be a compatibilist view. Uh, God would have compatibilist free will, whereas each one of the persons would have, if, if you're a libertarian, would have a libertarian free will. Maybe. Uh, will is hard. Uh, certainly the, the three persons have the three intrinsic persons have their own will. And of course, I'd, I'd have to tell some sort of story about how those wills can't clash and so forth. Mm-hmm. And, it, and then maybe I would just go from there to say that there's such a thing as like a supervenient will yeah. that uh, reflects the three individuals will, but has some distinctions. So imagine that each of the divine persons, father, son, and spirit are deciding which world to create. And each person has their own unique, let's say, aesthetic preferences. Uh, they, they want uh, the world to have a certain range of aesthetic features that differs from the other persons, okay? They all have their own aesthetic tastes. Uh, so here's a scenario that's at least conceivable. So of features one through three, the father prefers feature one and two, but not feature three. The son prefers feature one and three, but not two. And the spirit prefers features two and three, but not one. So the result is a majority preference for each of the three features, uh, even though all the individual members only preferred two of those features. Mm-hmm. So it's at least possible that the group's preference state about those features would differ from each of the members' states. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's not it's not at all inconceivable that a community as perfectly loving and agreeable as the, as the Trinity would resolve to dispute differences like this, mm. uh, that would result in a difference between the individuals and the group as a whole. Yeah. So maybe, maybe we can think of the will of God in that sense. Yeah. It's like the, the ad extra um, economic Trinity, right? Like God acting outside of himself to create uh, creation, you know, um, 
I, I think that's good. Some people are going to chafe at the idea of uh, the persons of the Trinity disagreeing. And, and if they are uh, an ideal group, then maybe they wouldn't be perfect. So that's fine. That's just to draw out the, the distinction that they might have different wills, but that act as one uh, in one will. So, yeah. yeah. As long as the, I don't, I, I think disagreement is probably not the right word, but as long as the difference is not one of like, uh, di- a difference over the truth value, oh, of right? Something like that's that. why you did preferences. Yeah, 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 yeah. Preferences, and I don't mean to imply that you know aesthetic preferences can't can also be like tied to objective features, things like that. But yeah, but yeah uh, as long as there's no like alethic divergence sure. between the persons of the Trinity, uh, I don't think them having their own preferences is is out of the question. In fact, I mean, <laughs> what is it to be a person if not to have like one's own preferences and so forth? Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that, that's, that's part of what makes a person unique. Yeah. I like it. I, I can dig the whole thing, man. I, I really, I really can dig this. Uh, we, I, I might have skipped over this, uh, unintentionally, but so we, we, we did talk about like group agency. Um, and so we could get group agency from the three persons of the Trinity working together, but, but how there are other conditions of personhood too. Can, can we flesh out how the, how God, uh, the, the triune God, um, also um, meets the conditions, the other conditions of personhood. So we have yeah. agency, but how about how about some others? Yeah, supposing the persons together meet conditions of agency, do they meet those other conditions of personhood, moral responsibility, freedom, rational first person, first person perspective? Yeah, and we've already kind of suggested how. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, one way is that. In anything that's praiseworthy or blameworthy is morally responsible, is a morally responsible agent, any morally responsible agent is a person. Mm-hmm. Clearly, the Trinity is praiseworthy, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and it seems like the Trinity proper is praiseworthy, not just uh, the individual persons, because no one divine person, Father, Son, and Spirit, for example, uh, is solely responsible for achieving salvation of mm-hmm. mankind, right? Yeah. That, that's something that the Trinity as a, as a group achieved mm-hmm. so uh and i think for that reason the trinity as a whole and not just the individual persons are praiseworthy but praiseworthiness is sufficient condition of personhood so there you go uh yeah. the, the trinity as a whole is is a person yeah the 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 rational first person perspective is is like a hang-up that i'm having because because i tie that so much to like like phenomenal consciousness i guess and so and this is kind of why I don't like robots too, or, or strong AI. But can you can you just help me? Like how how can it how can a functional person have a rational uh, first person perspective and not phenomenal consciousness? Well, just think if you don't like to think about robots, just think of like a think of your alligator snapping turtle. Okay, I mean there there's nothing it's like to be an alligator snapping turtle in the sense that. Oh, it's reflecting on its conscious states okay. and things like that. But but clearly, like the scenario you described before of him organizing the props in the tank to to orchestrate a trap for the gummies or the guppies, I mean that's intelligent behavior, that's rational behavior. Uh, and it does there is no phenomenal conscious states. Yeah. There. But there are conscious states. Yeah. And there is something that it is like to be the snapping turtle. Like a uh, I don't, I'm not so sure about that part because okay. that, that, that's starting to bring in phenomenal consciousness. <sighs> yeah. Okay. So 
I, I think I would want to just make a distinction between like a higher order, like self-reflective consciousness and phenomenal consciousness. Maybe, maybe I'm totally wrong here. Maybe I'm not up to snuff here, but like, like Nagel's original article was about bats. Like there's something that it's like to be a bat. Would you just disagree with him and say there is nothing that it's like to be a bat? Oh, I see. I just uh, take that as consciousness. Just that, that's just base uh, level. Okay. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm not convinced that, that bats have phenomenally conscious states and and maybe maybe yeah maybe i'm yeah older. maybe my, my reading has been yeah earlier into the literature too but so there's i would want to say and, and just maybe you could go with me but or or critique it but there's like there's there is a perspective that the my alligator snapping turtle has mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and so even if it's not phenomenally consciousness, it can't, it can't reflect. I would say that there are no reflective thoughts or no higher order thoughts like that. There's no beliefs about its beliefs. It probably doesn't have beliefs at all, uh, but it, it's conscious in that way. And so I think my original consciousness questions about the Trinity, there's if each person of the Trinity is phenomenally conscious, but God himself uh, as a, functional person might be conscious but not phenomenally conscious it has a pers- he has a perspective yeah that's right that's okay right. okay that's that's uh, no problem yeah uh, i think here here might be a distinction that will help you there's a distinction between what's called access consciousness yeah with phenomenal consciousness and this mm-hmm. and this goes back to a famous paper by ned block too yep. and he gives example of access consciousness I mean, think of like you're driving down the road and you start daydreaming and it's like there could be like almost it's almost like you see you're aware of the road. You have access to what's happening outside your mind in in a way that's sufficient for you to navigate. Yeah. Now it's like you're not there. You're not present. You know, you could be like I mean, I was so bad with this in college. I would sit in class and I would just imagine like sword fights breaking out in the classroom and wrestling matches and <laughs> and like you know my eyes would be open and i would see what's going on but then like oh i would snap out of it and and like sort of like get back into the into the swing of things mm-hmm. so it's like being being aware is not enough of being like phenomenally aware yeah yep so that is helpful uh, access consciousness is sufficient for like a rational first person perspective mm-hmm. but you can have that without being phenomenally conscious, at least in the way that Ned Block uses these terms, which I find helpful. Yeah, dude, that that is really helpful to me. And I'm even thinking about the uh, the case of you daydreaming. It would be like there's there's you, there's like the rational you, but then let's just say there's like two other persons in there as well. So like you mentioned something earlier, I can't remember the exact language about God, and it's I don't know. I think I might be losing it, but there's like three persons in one. You said it earlier. I'll have to go back and listen because it was really helpful to me. And now I lost it. But it would be like, um, yeah, that rational perspective that you have, even though you're somewhere else thinking, like you're, yeah, you're, yeah. But, but there's two other people in there. If you're the Trinity, is that right? Yeah, I think that's right. Boom. All right, that is helpful. I I like that. Some people think we're heretics right now, but that's okay. <laughs> that's all right. Well, you know, to to add. To add to that, to, to give them more ammunition, I think mm-hmm. a rough analogy to group personhood in the case of the Trinity would be something like those cartoons 
like Voltron and Power Rangers, where the, where the <laughs> you can't go there. Distinct, unique character yeah. that can't be reduced to just the individuals that mm-hmm. make them up. Uh, I, th- I think the father, son, and spirit are a tightly knit, unified group uh, in, in a way that they form a distinct agent and person uh, to whom we can relate to in, in a singular way. Yeah. Did you did you see the the YouTube video I sent you? I watched it. Yeah. Had, had you seen that before or not? Maybe years ago. Okay. It's familiar, but yeah. So, so people at home are using their Irish accents, and we got leprechauns uh, or uh, uh, clovers in the background here for those listening in audio. But they're going to say that's that's uh, partialism, Patrick. You know, that's a heresy. And I've I've looked that up. I've used that in class before, and a lot of times my professors won't won't know what I'm talking about if they haven't seen that video. I haven't seen like a council uh, condemning that, and I looked for it even today. And I looked at the video again. It's St. Patrick's Bad Analogies. I recommend everyone watch that on YouTube. It's great. But the analogy that, or yeah, the analogy they give, uh, for or the example they give of someone, a heretic who uses that is Voltron. Like you just said, then it's a joke. But it's like, uh, you probably should have t- thrown in some real evidence if you think that's a heresy. You know, if, if partialism is a heresy, you should have said, and here's where it was rejected at this council, you know, at this date. So, in that sense, you would be like a partialist according to them, right? Yeah, I think let's talk about partialism a little bit later because okay. that comes up more naturally when we start talking about God having parts. Yeah, that's great. So yeah. bef- before we get to that conversation, uh, we, we mentioned uh, Tuggy's argument earlier, Dale Tuggy's objection mm-hmm. that God is deceiving us. Um, and so I thought this 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 could be a good place to, to cover that maybe. Yeah, as a prelude to that, before, when I first started thinking about group agency and group personhood as it relates to the Trinity, I had no idea that the biblical writers themselves and their contemporaries may well have actually believed in something like group personhood too. Mm. Uh, or at least they, they had the, conspe- the conceptual space to recognize the existence of like group persons. Uh, but, but that's what I discovered when I started looking into this in some of the Old Testament literature. Back in the 1930s, a scholar by the name of H. Wheeler Robinson, wrote a very influential book called Corporate Personality in Ancient Israel. Hmm. And in that book, he argued that the ancient Hebrew Israelites and ancient Hebrew thought was just suffused. Their thought and language was suffused through and through with the idea that groups can literally have a consciousness of their own that's shared and and represented by, by its individual members. Hmm. Uh, and he called this corporate personality. And he argued that corporate personality underlies uh, such familiar Old Testament themes as as iniquities being yeah. and blessings being visited upon one's descendants. I just caught it. I just caught it. As you're saying, right before that, it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the, the whole notion of a covenant with a group of people, blood guilt, levirate marriage, collective responsibility. They're called Israel. Yeah. The people yeah. like the, Israel. And I will say this to Israel. The yeah. different tribes, uh, the, mm-hmm. uh, and Hebrew, the Hebrew language itself has many examples of of us of, of words and, and phrases and ways of speaking that have built into the built into it a singular plural ambiguity. Like the word uh, Adam, for example, Adam in Hebrew can be singular and plural depending on how you use it. Right. Um, uh, so, so there's this. Uh, uh, interesting concept of corporate personality that Wheeler Robinson thinks shows up everywhere in the Old Testament. Yeah. Now, um, Aubrey Johnson comes along, also an Old Testament scholar, uh, with his book, The One and the Many 
in the Israelite conception of God. He takes Wheeler Robinson's insights about corporate personality and says uh, the Israelites had no problem thinking of of divine beings as being corporate personalities as well. He argues that the messianic figure of Daniel 7 is a corporate personality. Hmm. Suffering servant of Isaiah is a corporate personality. And very interestingly, he reports that archaeologists have discovered a cuneiform inscription depicting Baal, the deity Baal, as having both one personality and three personalities. Hmm. Uh, yeah, very, very interesting. Wow. Now, of course, it shows up again in the, in the New Testament, uh, most prominently in Paul's robust doctrine of the, the, the church as the body of, body of Christ. Uh, and uh, one example of sort of the plural singular ambiguity in language shows up when in, in the episode when Jesus is, is casting out that demon and he demands its name and it responds, I am legion for we yeah. are. Yeah. So, I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I am. We I am legion for we are many. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, lots of examples like that that uh, that are argued that divine beings too, in addition to uh, human beings, can form groups that suffice that that are sufficient for meeting conditions of personhood. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Well, how this relates to Tuggy's argument? Well, Tuggy Tuggy has this argument. I love this argument. Uh, Tuggy's a good friend of mine, mm. and uh, we went back and forth about this for a while. But uh, he's got this argument against social Trinitarianism. It goes like this. Um, He thinks that if social Trinitarianism is true, then the social Trinitarian God would be guilty of a blameworthy act of deception. Well, Mm -hmm. how so? Well, he gives this analogy. Suppose there's an orphan named Annie. And one day, uh, Annie gets a call from someone claiming to be her father. Uh, But for unknown reasons, uh, he can't see her in person. He tells her he can't see her. Nonetheless, he maintains a loving relationship over the years, uh, although it's a relationship that's kind of has to be at a distance. Um, okay, so until one day, he announces that he's going to pay Annie an unexpected surprise visit. Well, when the day comes to Annie's surprise and horror, not one man shows up, but three men, each of whom had an equal role in lovingly raising Annie over the years, though. Uh, going to great lengths to make themselves seem as just one man, not three. Yeah. So uh, Tuggy says that uh, just as the three men would be guilty of wrongfully deceiving Annie into thinking she had just one father, uh, the social Trinitarian God would be guilty uh, for deceiving his early followers into thinking he was just one person when in fact he's three. Yeah. <laughs> That's his I, heart. I love that case. And for anyone who doesn't think that it would be a big deal, there's a movie called The Prestige. I don't know if you've ever seen that, Chad. Years ago. Okay, I'm 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 so nervous of ruining these movies for you. Uh, but but yeah, the, in The Prestige, uh, one of the magicians is actually twin brothers, and they live as one person, and they love. You know, there's a mistress. Uh, this guy is married, but he has a mistress, and uh, one loves the mistress, the other loves the wife, and it drives everyone insane. And they both raise a daughter together. And it's the same kind of thing. It just imagine a third person, but it, it drives everyone bonkers. It's crazy. And it really hurts everyone's relationship. So it could be a moral, definitely be a morally blameworthy thing to deceive someone that way. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, note, note that Tuggy is, is careful to qualify. That has to be a morally blameworthy act of deception mm-hmm. because he recognizes, and I think is absolutely true. Not all deception is morally blameworthy, yeah. but what he says would be. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so, so yeah. How do you, how do you respond to that? 
Well, if it's true that the ancients had the conceptual space to acknowledge the existence of group persons, the analogy just doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, 21st century Annie's concept of personhood is the product of thousands of years of major conceptual changes that resulted in her believing her father could not be more than one person. Mm-hmm. But this just wasn't true of, of the ancient Jews and their first century heirs. In fact, the writers of the New Testament and other early Christians, we can we can see them as basically being real life first century equivalents of Annie in the analogy. Mm-hmm. They responded to the revelation that God is more than one person, not with horror or surprise, uh, but by writing the New Testament and, <laughs> and launching the Christian faith. That's true. Uh, so, so arguably, um, it's precisely this sort of Jewish Hebraic anthropology that they brought to the revelation that made this transition smooth. So Paul, for instance, distinguishes us Christians from idolaters. I think it's 1 Corinthians 8. Idolaters worship many gods, but us Christians, we don't. Uh, And and as proof, he quotes the Jewish Shema. uh, There's only one God. Yet he smuggles Jesus straight into it. He says, yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things come. And for one Lord. And then there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Yes. uh, One God, and yet somehow there are two persons here. So the idea that a group could be a person uh, may not have been at all foreign to the biblical writers. So why does such an idea seem so foreign to us? Well, like I mentioned, there's a very long story about how we got our our modern concept of personhood. Uh, and it's pretty much unanimously agreed that two landmarks in this story are, one, the great Trinitarian and Christological debates of the Patristic era. Mm-hmm. Our concept of person that grew out of those. And, of course, there's the influence of, of Descartes. Uh, Descartes yeah. uh, race cogitons, uh, you know, the cog- cogito ergo sum and all yeah. that. So. Uh, but before those developments, the idea that God might have been a person uh, may not have seemed so strange or, or odd at all. Um, it's our unduly individualistic concept of personhood that would have seemed strange to them. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And, and that was such a massive thing that Trinitarian debates shaped all of the, you know, the Western world, I'm sure, shaped the, the Eastern world as well. Right. And then, yeah, and then Descartes' cogito was kind of a big deal as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder even so... So maybe Annie, if she's if she's a first century Jew or or prior, maybe she would think, yeah, uh, my dad can't be more than one person. But like you said, you you went into cases of you know Baal worship or Old Testament, the way people, the way the people of Israel thought about God. So maybe there's uh, some disanalogy between a case of a human being more than one person and their conception of God being more than one person. I think that's entirely plausible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, the the main point just being that the epistemic gap, right. Us and the ancients on this score just obliterates Tuggy's argument. I mean, yeah. this is so even if even if there are in fact no group persons, yeah. so long as the age, ancients believe that there could be, that's 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 enough to make them not like Annie in the relevant respect for the analogy to work. I think that's great. And and uh, Dale, if you are watching this, direct your stuff back at Chad because I'm I don't want to have the uh, I everyone every Trinitarian out there has this long discussion that they've had with him because he just, he's a Unitarian yeah. for those who don't, who don't know. And he sticks yeah. with stuff. So go back to Chad. Don't, don't come my way with this stuff. I wish he would respond to that paper. I, yeah. like, I think, I think this is just a devastating critique of, of that argument, but yeah. he, 
he told me, I think it was just over the phone or whatever. He, he and I talk every now and again. He said he just wants to double down and, and foot stomp and just say, no, conceptually, people just didn't have a different idea of personhood that like mm-hmm. than the one we have now. It's just impossible. I'm just like, well, look at the evidence. It's yeah. just do do the do the homework, do the research. I mean, right. it's an empirical matter. Just go back. I mean, this is obvious. Uh, sociologists and anthropologists have written volumes and volumes about how uh, different tribes and different people have very different and surprising conceptions of personhood. So that just seems to me empirically false. Yeah, I love that, man. That's great. Uh, that's such a good argument. All right, so now we're going to get into uh, a section that I call No Brute Facts, um, and this this has to do with your uh, dissertation and an argument for the Trinity from PSR, the principle of sufficient reason. And I, I like to call it No Brute Facts because it resonates once again with the work of Van Til, which I really love, which I'm sure is just accidental. Uh, the, the the reason that uh, they're, they're coming together is accidental for you, but for me, it, it, it meant so much of what I've been reading and learning and studying, and, and I love it. So I'm glad to see you work on this stuff as well. Um, How did you get into so for your dissertation? Like, why why did you pick the principle of sufficient reason? Why did you work on? Um, I, I forgot the the name. Uh, what's the name of your dissertation? Well, it's called rational foundationalism, but that is an unclever mashup of two views in metaphysics. Metaphysical foundationalism, Mm -hmm. which is just the view that all grounding chains or all dependence chains eventually bottom out in something fundamental. Yeah. And a view called metaphysical rationalism, which is the view that some version of the principle of sufficient reason is true. The version I like is just that everything has an explanation. Mm -hmm. And so I just put those two together and say, uh, rational foundationalism. <laughs> yeah, I love that. To me, at first, I was kind of confused because I was like, "Is this like epistemology we're talking yeah. about?" But... <laughs> That's right. You know, I've, I've presented a lot of the main ideas of the dissertation at many conferences over the years, and every time these these uh, wistful eyed epistemologists would show up to a talk on how to be a rational foundationalist, only to discover it was like hardcore metaphysics and like. <laughs> I just grew attached to the title after uh, scandalizing so many epistemologists that way. So <laughs> it's so good. I'm so glad to be scandalized in this way. Cause I would, I don't know if I wouldn't want to be a rational foundationalist in the uh, epistemological sense, but in the metaphysical sense that you're saying, I love it. I'm all about it. Let's do it. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So the idea of the principle of sufficient reason is that everything has, there's a sufficient reason for everything. And so there are there are no just brute facts that exist out there on their own that are unexplained. Yeah. And then so so I like this idea, but when I talk about this, people will say, "Well, how about God?" Mm-hmm. And I go, well, "Well, God, as I say, is self-existent." And they go, "Oh, so God's a brute fact, and he's the kind of like the brute fact axiom of your system, and then everything else falls from that." And I'm like, "Well, I don't I don't think God's a brute fact." And then you kind of put words to it. So can you explain can you explain that for us? Yeah. So the the principle of sufficient reason that I like is just that everything has an explanation of its existence. And sometimes you can qualify either in itself or in something else. Mm -hmm. Now, historically, everyone who accepted the principle of sufficient reason, PSR, maintained that even God was no exception. Uh, They maintained that God is somehow self-explanatory. The reason for his existence is found in his own essence. And 
uh, contemporary philosophers kind of chafe at this, yeah. and they they go for a version of the principle of sufficient reason that's that's highly qualified. They'll say like all contingent truths have an explanation, yeah. or all things that possibly have causes have explanations, or something to that effect. Uh, so, so or all dependent things have explanations. Now, I just go for the historical PSR and say no, everything has an explanation, including God. Yeah. Now the you can think of it. You can think of it this way, you know, the classic straw man response to the cause, the cosmological argument, is well, if everything has a cause, well, then what's God's cause? Now, that's obviously a straw man, and and no theist worth his salt has ever defended the premise that everything has a cause. But when it comes to the principle of sufficient reason, that is what we want to say. Everything does have an explanation, including God. God is no exception here. Mm-hmm. And the burden of my dissertation is trying to figure out how a fundamental being, God, can have an explanation in himself. Yeah, I, I love that. And um, so we're going to get into uh, an argument for the Trinity here. And so I don't want to go you know, super far. Are you able to explain that without you know, 500 pages. <laughs> sure. Yeah, absolutely. I, lo- I mean, yeah. I love to, I think yeah. it's, I think it's fairly simple. Once, once you kind of lay it out uh, from beginning to end, uh, you know, for starting from the principle of sufficient reason, you know, as I mentioned, historically philosophers have wanted to maintain that God's being is somehow self-explanatory His reason for his being is, is in himself and his own essence. Now, Historic the historical count, accounts of how God how this works, I looked at and I just can't make sense of them. I I think they're all unsatisfactory in in some way or other, um, because good explanations have the property of making intelligible. Yeah. Okay. So when we gain we gain understanding or insight when one thing explains another. Yeah. And that's just it. One thing explains another. Good good explanations are ones are ones where one thing explains another. In other words, good explanations are irreflexive. Mm-hmm. Explanations where X explains X are not good explanations. And yeah. and and that's what a lot of these historical accounts of God's essence explaining his existence or God's essence and existence being identical, that's what they boil down to. They, kind they of a vicious they, circularity there. Yeah, there's a vicious circularity either in saying that the explanation is reflexive mm-hmm. x explains x or if we want to make a distinction between god's existence and essence as leibniz did we would say x explains y and then y explains x yeah which would be viciously circular also so yeah. both of those types of explanations i think are unworkable they don't yeah. make god's being intelligible but that's what we're that's what we want that's what the psr demands yeah the first would be like a tautology x explains x and the second right. would be viciously circular okay that's right yeah okay mm-hmm. so um i have i, I wrote out uh, an argument here um premises one through five on on the notes that i gave you is mm-hmm. Is that a good? Is this a good spot to go through those? Yeah. Why don't you read through that and then and you can just ask questions as as you go. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. Well. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Okay. So yeah, you ha- you have this uh, this argument, the set of premises uh, from your dissertation, which uh, I don't I don't have them to show folks at home or anything, but I can read them and uh, Lord willing, we can get through this. Everything that exists has an explanation of his of its existence, either wholly in something else partly in something else and partly in itself or 
wholly in itself. That, that sounds right. Two, the chain of things sufficiently explained wholly or partly in something else cannot be infinitely deferred. Turtles all the way down, alligator snapping turtles all the way down, <laughs> or circular bootstrapping or, you know, chicken and the egg. Three, the chain of things sufficiently explained wholly or partly in something else requires existence of something whose explanation is wholly in itself, which, yeah, that's right. Four, something whose explanation is wholly in itself is sufficiently explained by its parts. Okay, so that yeah. that's the key move I make uh, in the dissertation. And, yeah. and so be, because if we think about God, let's just imagine God prior to the state of creation. Mm-hmm. And the, pre- and the principle of sufficient reason is true. God has an explanation. Well, nothing outside or external to God can explain his existence because God's the only thing that exists. Mm-hmm. So if God has an explanation, we must turn inward. There must be something internal to God that explains his existence. Um, now, when we consider what there could be internal to a being that could explain his existence, the most obvious candidate here is a thing's parts. Mm-hmm. When you think about it, I mean, we, we explain things by appeal to their parts all the time. An explanation of the existence of like a wall, uh, for example, that doesn't appeal to anything beyond except the wall itself will cite like its bricks or, or its blocks. If we want to explain the existence of a certain set, we will cite its members. Yeah. If we want to explain the existence of a proton, we'll appeal to its quarks. Mm-hmm. And so on. So, yeah, as long as we're trying to explain something without reference to anything outside of that thing, we're going to reference something inside that thing. And the most natural thing is just going to be its parts. Yeah. Um, I, I missed this earlier, but there's a so like a myriological simple cannot explain itself because it has this bootstrapping problem. Yeah. And you, uh, it reminded me of this because of quarks. I don't really know what quarks are, if they're like made up of something or whatever, but. Can you just explain why a myriological simple cannot explain itself and, and how the bootstrapping works? Yeah. Then? Yeah. I just don't see how an absolutely simple being can have an explanation since it doesn't have, since it can't have an external explanation mm-hmm. since we're imagining this, this myriological simple existing all by itself mm-hmm. and having no real distinctions between anything within this simple being, mm-hmm. there can't be anything internal to explain it. There's nothing internal for ex- an ex- explanatory relation to squeeze between. Yeah. It, there's just nothing in there uh, for 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 explanatory relation to, to to grab hold of. So a simple being is is straightforwardly in violation of the principle of sufficient reason. Yeah. So you'd have to, if you wanted to say there is a myriological simple, then you'd have to let go of the principle of sufficient reason. If the myriological simple exists like all by itself. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. And so I mean, then God, this. Guy- God could create a myriological simple, presumably, but then that simple thing depends on something outside of itself. Right. And that's that. And that's exactly what the, your premises got at, you know, there's a change of things uh, sufficiently explained or holy. Okay. So God could create that just a world of, of, if a quark or a super string or whatever you want to say is myriological simple. Okay. Um, But a myriological simple cannot be the ground of all things. That's right. It can't and, be, yeah, there's, if, if we're imagining nothing being prior to it, it can't be fundamental is what I'm saying. It can't, yeah. it can't be, yeah, nothing, nothing prior to this thing. If it's mere logical, simple, that is a violation of the PSR. Yes. Yeah. And so this like necessitates a, a rejection of, of divine simplicity. A I think certain, so. a certain set, a, a certain type of maybe the austere or certain types of most types, probably of uh, divine simplicity. 
Yeah, at least the strong types associated with like Aquinas, for example. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Even I mean, I there is a sense in which I want to affirm simplicity in that God is a unified being. God God is a unity of sorts. Mm-hmm. And he's simple in that he can't be like decomposed or broken down or, you know, uh yeah. subject to corruption. Yeah. But yeah, that's a different sense of simplicity than what's operating in like the the doctrine of divine simplicity. Yeah. And so so you might say that that the persons of the Trinity comprise the Godhead and each person is an inseparable part, though mm-hmm. though not myriologically simple. God is not myriologically simple. That's but he's right. composed of inseparable parts. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think Chris comes up with like this lowest common denominator, which I think that would fit for uh, a chastened uh, simplicity in his mm. uh, analyzing doctrine, which is interesting. Um, I got to think about that more. That's good. But so then you move on there to the, that fifth premise. Do you want to cover anything else before we go into the fifth one? That's good. That's just my motivation for thinking if all we have to explain this being is something internal to the being, mm-hmm. the obvious candidate is going to be a thing's parts. Yeah. And, and by part, I just mean, I mean something broad. I, I don't mean uh, like a physical constituent or anything right. like that. I just mean, I just mean, a things on whatever whatever is the ontologically salient structural thing that makes the thing it is makes yeah. it, makes it the thing that it is. Mm-hmm. Okay, so premise five there is really interesting. Uh, so we we got through all we got through four premises, and uh, so number four was something whose explanation is holy in itself is sufficiently explained by its parts. So now we go into the parts, and premise five is something whose Sufficient explanation is in its parts requires at least three proper parts, which mutually explain uh, each other. That's right. quite a claim. I like that a lot. It but... is. It is quite a claim, but this is the main argument, the main novel argument of my dissertation. So mm-hmm. uh, we we have this thing who's explained by its parts, but if everything has an explanation, well, that just pushes it back a bit. What explains the parts, right? Mm-hmm. So I want to say, well, it can't be parts all the way down and it can't be parts explaining each other in a manner of like, you know, chicken and egg scenarios. Uh, That would be viciously circular. Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, most cases of, so I want to say it can't be all the way down. Uh, There must be, the parts must somehow mutually explain each other, but they can't mutually explain each other in this viciously circular way. Um, but all the cases of vicious circularity like this, the chicken and egg scenario, are ones where you have two terms, A and B, where A explains B and B explains A. Mm-hmm. Obviously, viciously circular. Yep. Um, now, it's, again, it's a classic problem of which came first, chicken or egg. But not all cases of mutual dependence are like this, uh, like the chicken and the egg. So consider magnets. The north and south poles of a magnet do explain each other. But there's more that enters this explanatory picture, mm-hmm. namely the magnetic field itself. Yeah. Uh, other examples of the uh, of this sort of tripartite mutual dependence. This it's not binary. It's it's like ternary. It's tripartite. Are ones where like uh, you have a relation between mass, density, and volume. Yeah. Um, each sort of mutually explains each other. Yeah. You have uh, hylomorphic compounds of matter, form, and and that which conjoins them. Mm-hmm. You have certain subatomic particles like protons and, and neutrons, which are made up of quark triplets. 
mm-hmm. that can't exist without each other. They, they sort of explain why the other exists. Hmm. Um, so you can't, the lesson here is that you can't have two things, just two things that depend or explain only each other. Um, but you can have mutual dependence when you have three things that partially and mutually explain each other. Yeah. So the structure here is, is not like a loop, which is viciously circular. It's more like a web. Mm-hmm. Which is so, which is so funny because it's like you, you could make a joke about that. Be like, well, the problem with all, all of you guys, you only have two. And if you had a third thing and then it's like, wait a second, that actually works. <laughs> yeah. That's fantastic. So, um, how do you think of that? Like, where, where did that come from? Was that because you were already thinking about the Trinity or was that something that was like a aha moment where like, Hey, this actually might work for the Trinity. That's a good question. I don't know where I thought of this. The magnet thing gets me. I like that one a lot. North pole, North South yeah, pole. And you know, I was thinking I was working with, with Karen Bennett on, on my dissertation and I, and I was very interested in, in the literature on, mutual dependence, mutual ground. And I thought of a lot of these examples on my own and only to discover like draft draft work of philosophers who are discussing a lot of the same examples that I have drafts in my work. I'm like, no, I got scooped. But but yeah, like I I just remember doodling one day, uh, exploring different ways something could be mutually related. And you could have, you know, A, B, arrow going from A to B, from B to A, that's that's circular. Mm-hmm. Then what if you add a, cer- a third thing with the same sort of arrows, but all going to each other? That's sort of a next level, a level of complexity. Yeah, and I was thinking of like, well, is that problematic? And I say, no, it's not. And notice how that's different from A, B, C, where the arrows only go in one direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, that is viciously circular. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a great point. Yeah, because you could have four, five, six, seven. But yeah, yeah, yeah. It wouldn't even matter as long as it loops back in on itself. Yeah. So, so it, it, it's all. It gets a little technical as the way I cash it out in the dissertation. But uh, the relations here, the arrows represent partial ground, not full mm-hmm. ground. So if A partially grounds B, B partially grounds A. The same thing with B and C, and, and same thing with uh, C and A. Uh, they all sort of partially ground, but fully ground each other, which avoids this loopy structure because it's more like web-like. That's so fantastic. That's so interesting. So, so then uh, the thing that grounds everything else, which has to, uh, it has to ground everything else. So it has to explain itself. uh, The sufficient number for that thing, the the sufficient number of the parts of that thing are three. Mm -hmm. And so God is, Three. If God is this necessary ground, metaphysical ground, then he must be composed of three parts. Yeah, that's right. So you need at least three things in order to have uh, a sim- uh, in order to have a being that is sufficiently explained in itself. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's so cool. That's so cool. So now, yeah, obviously, I'm thinking of, of the parts as as divine persons, right? Father, right, right, Father, right. Son, and Spirit. The Triune God is explained by the divine persons, and divine persons explain each other. Nothing goes unexplained. The PSR, we can have the PSR, but it comes with this view of God as having parts. Uh, yeah. But but notice how I drew that picture again, is is how they're all sort of like mutually related to each other, and this just fits so well with the doctrine of perichoresis that you yeah. mentioned before, and. 
I mean, it's kind of an outdated term at this point, but theologians used to talk of the doctrine of perichoresis in terms of the, the mutual interpenetration yeah. of the persons. Uh, so I, I think that this this model, this way of structuring God uh, is a way of making sense of that. And yeah, and you don't get God with just two persons of the Trinity. Right. And it's like, that's we've always said that. Yeah, of course. Of course, that's right. I really like that. When you start saying parts, everyone's hairs start going up. Even my own hairs go up. When you say it's the three persons of the Trinity, oh, yeah, naturally. Okay, well, that's that's what he's saying. Um, and, uh, so if we do have to let go of uh, simplicity or at least a strong sense of simplicity, uh, what do we do about aseity? Can we still have aseity without simplicity? It depends on what you mean by aseity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so some philosophers claim that God can be ase only if God is simple. Sense to be ah say is to be independent, yeah, and to be independent is to just be not dependent on anything, mm-hmm. period. But only a simple being can be independent in that sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, there's a big problem with this view, and it's known as the doctrine of the Trinity. <laughs> <laughs> all all agree that there are at least some dependence relations within the Godhead. The Son is begotten of the Father, for instance. Yeah. Eternal generation is a dependence relation, mm-hmm. yet the son is said to be ase. So which is it? Is ase the independence or is the son not dependent on the father? Uh, so this is a great example of where I think it's a mistake to articulate divine attributes in abstraction from other divine attributes. We mm-hmm. can't just consult our perfect being intuitions right. and arrive at a conception of an attribute in isolation from the others. Yeah. So. So I agree with classical theists that aseity is incompatible with a certain kind of dependence, mm-hmm. namely asymmetric dependence, yeah. asymmetric dependence on something external, since that does plausibly imply that that whatever if, – if A depends on B but not vice versa, well, then B is somehow greater than A. Right, totally. Right? I yeah. think that's I think that's probably right. I think there's something to that intuition. Same. Um, but note. On the model I sketch, no person depends on the other in that way. They right. all mutually depend on each other. There is mm-hmm. no asymmetric dependence between the persons. There's only mutual dependence. And so long as you have mutual dependence, I don't see how any intuitions, at least base intuitions about uh, imperfection relating to asymmetric dependence is going to be a problem. Yeah, I'm, I think you're right. And I think that You've shown through this the, these five uh, this this argument of five premises that, that we mentioned that if you want to be ase, a meaning if you want to be uh, something that explains itself, uh, and you want to still have PSR, then you need three parts. And so yeah. I thought I think that's that's so interesting to 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 think through. And so if you do want aseity, then you might need to let go of this strong version of of metaphysical yeah. simplicity. At least at least aseity as rigidly. So I don't think you, you can have aseity without simplicity if aseity is rigidly defined as not being dependent on anything, period. But yeah. that, that's okay uh, because you can't have the Trinity then either. Yeah. Uh, so I'll, I'll just speak of the divine attribute of triseity instead, mm. not aseity, which we can define as the strongest form of independence that's compatible with the Trinity. Try, yeah, triseity. That's not bad because we want to be good Trinitarians anyways. Right. And so like the the necessary being, the ground of all existence is uh, a triseity. Just, yeah, trise, yeah. Dude, I, yeah, trise. Work, but, 
yeah. That's great. No, I like it. I hope someone runs with it. I might run with that because I love, I love, we need to be Trinitarian. We're Christians. We're Trinitarians. Yeah. Let's be Trinitarians in what we talk about. Um, yeah. Without being, you know, tritheists, of course not. Of course not. Yeah, we want to say the Shema the way that Paul said it, of course. That's right. Um, but yeah, we should be Trinitarians. I love that. Uh, I, I Again, I don't know if this is the most organic way to bring it up, but I want to talk about organic unity. And your mm-hmm. organic unity argument, because this is again, it fits so well with the Dutch Van Til and and uh, Bavinks, and there's this um, resurgence in Bavink literature, uh, mainly around his organic motif, hmm. um, and it's very very similar to what you're talking about, unity and diversity. And there was this kind of two Bavinks, uh, Herman Bavink, that, that they thought there was a modern one and an orthodox one, and he split amongst himself. And uh, Bavink, you know, divided can't stand. And then uh, these new scholars from Edinburgh came through and were like, mostly following James Eglinton, Eglinton, say, you know, there's this organic motif in Bavink, this unity and diversity, which he grounds, which he pulls from the Trinity. And this unifies his whole thought. He's hmm. not, you know, he's eclectically pulling from people, finding a unity and diversity in theology and philosophy. He's able to do that because he grounds everything back into the, the Triniform unity and diversity. So yeah. it it blows my mind, man. And so many times I'm reading your stuff and I'm like, dude, this is right. This is exactly what I've been wrestling through. But you're coming from the philosophical side, which I like even better. So I have the premises here. Um, should I sketch them? Should I read them out? Or or do you want to just set it up for us? Or what do we think? Yeah, I'll set it up. Yeah. Well, let, me, let me say also, it sounds like what you're reading in Bavink uh, is, is very similar to what you can find in Jonathan Edwards. Yeah, I I. I wonder if Eglinton has made that connection, um, but but maybe, yeah, it could be. There's uh, Amy Planiga Paul's book. I think it's the Harmony is in the uh, the Supreme Harmony of All. That's the title okay. of the book, and it's about uh, Jonathan Edwards on the Trinity. Okay, and it's very very good book. So check check that out. Yeah, so well, right up your wheelhouse. Yeah. Okay, sweet. Uh, oh yeah, so there, there, there's this issue about organic unity, and we we talk about not wanting to have our perfect being intuitions uh, influenced by, I don't know, more by Aristotle than say like the God of Christianity or or the triune God. So we have to have something that informs what it means to be a perfect being. And so here I think we need an axiology. We need, we need a framework of value in order to inform what we think of as uh, metrics of perfection. Uh, and so one venerable way of thinking about axiology, value, uh, is, is this ancient way that goes back all the way back to Plato, which is in terms of uh, uh, organic unity, where value supervenes on or is a function of unity and diversity. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, the English word good stems from an Indo-European root that means to unite, to join, to fit together, to bring together, and so forth. So here's an example. A good painting is one that unites a diversity of form, textures, colors, tones into a beautiful image. Yeah. A musical symphony unifies across time a diversity of sounds into a pleasing score. A novel will tie together various themes, plots, characters into a meaningful narrative. Theories that unify a diversity of phenomena in their explanations have a high degree of theoretical value. Mm-hmm. Um, they're often described as elegant and beautiful. Uh, we don't just want um, accidentally true beliefs. We want knowledge where knowledge is true. It's truth 
and belief brought into a proper unity. Yeah. So it's this unity and diversity, this sort of like a, a harmonious interaction between part and whole that is the hallmark of value. Yes. And and I think uh, this this is in a br- absolutely brilliant defense of this view of value comes from uh, the work of Robert. No, like I said, it's got a uh, uh, tremendous historical pedigree, but you can find a robust defense of it in R- Robert Nozick's book, Philosophical Explanations. Mm. Okay. I'll have to check that one out because it, it, everything you're saying is like, I'm sweating right now. Cause I'm so excited about it. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's on our, it's on our money. E pluribus unum. That's right. right? It's, right. it's, it's everywhere. There's, we live in the universe. We go to university. Right. Like all these things, it's it's unity and diversity, not uniformity, because mm-hmm. uniformity is you know, a white page or something. But unity in diversity is fantastic. That's what we find in the church. So it, it goes everywhere. And, and so Van Til finds it in the uh, the ancient problem of the one and the many. And mm-hmm. so when you when you try to overemphasize the unity, you miss out on the many. When you overemphasize the many, you miss out on the unity. Right. And this is what the ancients did. And so Van Til wants to say, well, because there is an equal ultimacy between the one and the many and the Godhead, uh, the the one and the three, then of course we're going to find uh, a problem if we try to overemphasize unity or diversity out here in, in yeah. the, you know, the, the fingerprints of the Trinity. It That's just right. gets me so worked up. I love it. So, so going back to you, so you're, you're doing it in a, um, it's an axiological way or, or. Well, yeah. So if we think of value in terms of organic unity, whatever has value is or or is an organ, organic unity of some kind. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got it's a whole with parts and the parts are related to each other in some harmonious way. Then if that's the hallmark of value, then God must be an organic unity. Mm-hmm. So we have this we have that argument then uh, we have premise one. If X is valuable, then X is an organic unity. Well, God is valuable. He's the supremely valuable being. So God must be an organic unity. Mm-hmm. But if God is absolutely simple, then God can't be or, an organic unity. Uh, so God is not absolutely simple. It's a straightforward argument from from value theory, from from a certain value, axiological framework, uh, thinking of value in terms of organic unity against the doctrine of divine simplicity. Yeah. I think it's interesting. I really like it. And uh, so I just want to be clear the the Edinburgh uh, scholars who are, you know, uh, taking this Bavink uh, reformation, they probably would not go this far. They wouldn't go as far as me to say that God himself is an organic unity, but that he's, you know, he's triune. And because of that, we find organic unity in the universe. And it's like a a vestigia trinitatis, you know, Mm -hmm. fingerprints everywhere. I would, I might go even further, right? And I think Van Til goes a little bit further in saying what you've just said, that God is an organic unity. There's an equal ultimacy between the the one and the many in the Godhead. Just as long as you note that what we mean by organic here is just not something like physically organic. Of course, yeah. The the title organic unity just comes from the paradigm examples of organic unities are – organisms yeah uh so that that's just the the it's just the etymology of the term organic that just don't just don't get tripped up with that it's it's such a great point too because yeah the listeners will think well you know hume said the world's like a carrot so is that what we're talking about no no we're not talking about we're talking about organism in like the post-kantian philosophical sense or something you know even though we're not we're not post-kantians or anything we're not idealists but that's where the terminology starts coming from Uh we just take that concept and say yeah that's what we're talking about not yeah, God is like a physical a, organism. 
Yeah, we're talking about like a, a complex but harmonious interaction yeah. between a, a part and a whole. Yeah, it's a muriological discussion, not a right. biological discussion. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That's a very good way of putting it. Yeah. And actually, that brings us back to the charge of partialism right. I, I wanted to revisit. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, as you pointed out before, partialism is not it's not an articulated name of a heresy or, mo- or like modalism or Arianism or anything like that. Um, but there is an obvious sense in which I'm thinking of the, the persons of the Trinity as parts of God. Mm-hmm. I mean, since each person is not the whole Godhead, it's obviously right. some kind of part whole relationship is obtaining here. Um, but there are many ways things can have parts. Obviously if God has parts, it's not going to be like the way a material thing has parts. Uh, he can't fall apart. Is not subject to corruption or decons- decomposition. He can't right. swap parts out. <laughs> um, I mean, other things are like this too. Like sets. Sets are necessarily existent in material things that have their parts essentially. Um, so God would be like that. Oh, well, of course. I mean, there are important differences too. You know, the Trinity is a concrete object, not abstract right. object. Like a set. Uh, yeah. Yeah, the, mem- the members of the Trinity belong to the Trinity, not by relation of set membership, but maybe something else. So, I mean, there are disanalogies, but I mean, the main point is don't don't have this sort of crass understanding of what it means to be a part. Yeah. Um, so that being said, the best sense I can make of the charge of partialism is this. It's that each of the three persons is is not one third of the Trinity uh, to, in the sense that they're not individually fully divine right but individually they're only like a third divine as if each adds up yeah. their divinity to get something 100 percent divine holy divine yeah, yeah. Uh, and of course i agree with this uh divinity is not additive like this but that's not a very in- interesting observation i mean divinity isn't isn't that kind of property yeah like like weight. you know if you have a bunch of things that weigh a pound and you put them all together to make something that thing is going to weigh a lot more than a pound mm-hmm. but Divinity is not like that. Divinity is more like like uh, qualitative properties, like color. You know, if you have a bunch of red things and add them all together, you don't get something that's redder. You, <laughs> yeah. you, you just have you just have one thing that's just as red, equally as red as all the individual things separately. So, divinity divinity is like that. It's not like weight. Yeah, I like that. I like the redness uh, understanding. So, so initially, I'm just thinking like, well, you did add together a bunch of um, I- intrinsic. Um, I always say it wrong. I always want to say intrinsic persons, uh, intrinsicist persons. Intrinsicist, yeah. and, and you, you didn't get an intrinsicist uh, person in the Godhead. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's okay. Cause that's how the whole system works. I think. Right. So mm-hmm. what, what would you make of that objection? If someone said that, so it's, it would be like saying, yeah, you are adding up three red things, three in- intrinsicist persons, but you are getting a less, maybe like a, a pink thing because it's less red than the other the three parts. Does that make sense? I'm struggling. Okay. I mean, I, I got to find the, okay. Uh, I got to grab your word again. So we have uh, functional persons and intrinsicist persons. Yeah. So um, someone might, I'm just thinking in my head, I don't agree with this, but I'm just thinking in my head, like, uh, so you're, you're, you want to make this distinction or you want to make this clarification that three red things, and then you get a, a, another red thing mm. from, from the, the collection of the three. Or the set of the three. Well, maybe you shouldn't say set because that's a whole different thing. But the collection of the three. So, but in in our in your treatment of the Trinity, you had three intrinsic persons, but yet when you bring them together, you have a functional person, not another intrinsic person. So maybe 
Uh, no, the objection would be opposite. It would be a, a inverse of of what you're saying. So the the objection would be, uh, yeah, never mind, dude. It makes total sense. You're not adding three things that are less together to get something that is more, which is what you're saying. The kind of folk level um, partialism argument is, if anything, it'd be adding three things that are more and getting something less, but that's not even at issue because we're talking about intrinsic persons versus, um, I was for, uh, functional persons. Okay. Okay. Sorry. I just had to word vomit that out. (laughs) If, if, uh, yeah, if, if the three persons divinity together gets, entails anything about the triune god it would just be that the triune god as a group is also divine but yeah. that was that again that just be more like redness yeah that's yeah. good that's good i'm so glad you brought that up i'm sorry that i had to reason through it all weird oh, like that, but yeah okay so um let's get us for for the folks at home let's get us the whole thing together let's talk about uh yeah bring us home from from psr all the way to the trinity and i yeah. do have a slide for this one yeah i i put together a slide containing the sort of a the main steps of the argument. Um, so we use sort of logic step by step. Yeah. Okay. So we start, we start with the principle of sufficient reason. One sec. Let me, let me, uh, mm-hmm. there we go. All right. Yeah. Our starting point was the PSR. Everything that exists has an explanation either in something else or in itself. Mm-hmm. So we have this argument here. Uh, there exists something whose explanation is in something else. Unproblematic. If, there exists something whose explanation is in something else. There exists something whose explanation is in itself. Now you can argue for that in different ways. You eliminate chickens and eggs, you eliminate infinite regresses and so forth. So mm-hmm. there, there exists something whose explanation is in itself. Sweet. Okay. Yep. So from there, uh, we can show that this being must be necessarily existent. That which exists, whose explanation is in itself is either contingent or necessary. Well, if it's contingent, it has an explanation in something else. That's just what it means to be contingent mm-hmm. or at least an entailment of contingency. Um, but this thing doesn't have its explanation in something else, but we already derived that uh, from the first argument. So that which exists, whose explanation is in itself is not contingent, but necessary. Mm-hmm. All right. And so I build on this argument as follows. That which exists, whose explanation is in itself is explained by its parts. We went over that. Mm-hmm. Now, that which, ex- that which exists whose explanation is in itself is explained by its parts only if it has at least three parts. And that mm-hmm. was the main argument I gave. So that which exists whose explanation is in itself has three has at least three parts. I think I might have a typo there. If, there. if three parts are sufficient to explain that which exists whose explanation is in itself, we should postulate no more. Now, this is just an application of the principle, or I mean, of, of Occam's razor. Yeah, the principle of parsimony, is that the same thing? Yeah, principle of parsimony, Occam's razor, yeah. whichever, yeah. Okay. So three, so three parts are sufficient to explain that which exists whose explanation is in itself. So that which exists whose explanation is in itself has three parts and no more. And so... Altogether, then, from the initial oh, PSR, yeah. uh, my proposed or tripartite style of mutual explanation and a parsimony principle, we get the conclusion that there does exist something whose explanation is in itself, it's necessarily existent, and has exactly three parts. I love that. I love that so much. Um, uh, premise 11, that we should postulate no more. Mm-hmm. Um it's because so I've, I made this argument. We're going to talk about it in a little bit. Um, if something is sufficient, 
that's that's all that you need. You don't yeah. need any more. So right. could someone say, well, is it is it possible that it has four por- four parts, or how do you how do you go with that that kind of? Yeah, you, someone could certainly say that, but then the onus is on them to give reason for postulating four parts. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now, in in, in my dissertation, I give somewhat of a different argument, and it's that. I rely, I look at the work of Jonathan Schaffer. He's got this paper called The Laser, hmm. where he thinks the best way to formulate Occam's razor, the parsimony principle, is that we should not multiply fundamental entities beyond necessity. Mm-hmm. Now, he thinks that there's only one fundamental entity, and that's the universe. Okay. But that grounds like indefinitely many parts, you know, yeah. like all the parts yeah. of the universe. So as long as there's just one fundamental thing, that's, that's all we need. Well, I, I agree with Schaffer. Let's not multiply fundamental entities beyond necessity, but I have a parsimony principle of my own to recommend then in response, which is Chad's eraser. Uh, <laughs> we shouldn't postulate parts of a fundamental entity beyond necessity either. Yeah. So because on my view, we only need three parts to explain the whole, we should just go ahead and erase all those other parts. Yeah. So. That's awesome. I love it. So, so yeah, dude, it's so good, man. I love that so much. I got to think about that more. I'm going to, I'm going to internalize that and make it part of my own. I'll give you credit, of course, but um, it's so good. Uh, it, so this whole time reading through your stuff that you sent me, I kept on going, yes, yes, yes. Because it lined up so much with what I'd been uh, taking from theology, trying to uh, come up with philosophical categories for mostly from Van Til and Bavink and, and, you know, reformed kind of, kind of dudes. So like the organic motif and there's no such thing as, as a brute fact. So, you know, a strong sense of PSR and all this kind of stuff. <clears throat> and I've been working on this argument, which I was terrified to hear you talk about on Cameron's live stream. I was so like, I was so excited about that live stream. I'm watching, you know, in and out, I got work and stuff, but I'd come in for an hour and I'd leave and you guys did it for so long. Uh, by the way, that stream is, um, it's a hundred plus arguments for the existence of God, something like that on capturing Christianity. Is that right? That's, I think that's right. Yeah. Uh, do you remember how many hours that went? It was four and a half. <laughs> that's amazing. It's so good. I think it was like 150 uh, arguments in, in total. Know. Yeah. And and we just had to omit so much material yeah. and detail. Yeah. 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 Amazing. But so, so you go in and I just turned in, I tuned in randomly and you talk about this argument from concept acquisition. And I was like, no, that can't be. What... And then he goes <laughs> and you're, and you're talking about, uh, you know, JJ Haldane's argument. And so I grabbed the book. It is uh, atheism and theism second edition. And I was just so terrified and horrified because I had been working on this for maybe two years, a year and a half, at least thinking through this argument. And I found it in Donald Davidson. So then I'm reading a little bit of Haldane and he mentions Davidson. No, stop it. But uh, I think our arguments are sufficiently different from each other. And and I, I didn't even know who he was beforehand. So I I got scooped like 10 years prior. Um, But I wanted to talk about it with you because there's a lot of similar concepts and and maybe you could disabuse me of it or you could help me sharpen it or we could just, yeah, I'm c- totally curious. Yeah, I want to hear it. Yeah, well, oh, so um, I was reading. I I, I love C.S. Lewis and I love Van Til, and they don't they don't play nice in my head because one is you know an Arminian, one's a, a Calvinist of Calvinists, and they're they're bickering and stuff. But they both have a similar argument in that it's kind of a, a transcendental type argument, and it's kind of you know metaphysical grounding type stuff. But so um, 
Lewis, his, his argument from reason as it's come to be known uh, in chapters one through six of miracles, and then maybe 11 and 13 as well, talks about, you know, this, this argument from reason against, uh, against naturalism, against a physicalism, but then also in chapter four, he, he argues for God from reason. And it's kind of a cosmological argument from reason. He says, yeah, if we have reason coming from reason all the way back, no problem. But if you if there's a reason coming from non-reason, we have to cry halt. And that's exactly what the, the naturalist says, that we got reason from non-reason. And and Van Til has similar uh, intimations in his, his transcendental argument. If it is, it's kind of a meta argument. There's never really any propositional form. So I wanted to merge these two, and I was reading Donald Davidson, and he has this thing called a triangulation argument. Have, are you familiar with this? And yeah. most people, yeah, it's super obscure or ab- obscure. So Davidson was trying to come up with an answer to external world skepticism. And so he has this triangulation argument that says, um, you know, it, it's kind of a transcendental argument, though there's debate in the literature on whether it is or not. But Davidson says, how do I know that there's an external world? Well, if I have the concept of like table, then I had to come to that concept from triangulating with another person on a material, on a, on a physical thing, on a something external to us. And so it's this triangulation principle of two communicators uh, looking at something, describing it, and, and one of them passing the concept on to the other one. And so it's, it's concept uh, acquisition. And so he said, you know, he wasn't super uh, staunch about it, but he was putting this forward as an argument, um, a solution to external or other minds and external world skepticism. How do I know there are other people like me and there's an external world? Because I have concepts. And concepts only form from uh, someone, a person similar like me, triangulating, teaching me the concepts for things. So there has to be things and there has to be other people. And so, yeah, there might be some content externalism there that we might have to, I might have to bite a bullet on, but I, I don't think it's as bad as like Putnam's or something. So if that's just historically, like how we come to form our, our concepts, like I have a concept of table. How did I learn that? Well, when I was young, my mom or some teacher said, hey, buddy, can you say table? Can you say table? And I say table. And then we look at a different table. And I learned that a table is not just the brown thing over here, but it's this concept. And I start forming the word and I start forming the concept of it. And maybe you only need a couple of these concepts to then start building other concepts off of. But your fundamental concepts you you acquired through this process of triangulation with a teacher. But then immediately, how did how did the teacher get the concept? How did mom get the concept of table? Well, from grandmom, uh, well, let's call her, it could be anyone, but yeah. from grandmom. Okay. Well, how about them from, from their grand? So this process of triangulation immediately leads to either an, an infinite regress or concepts and speech coming from non-concepts and speech or can terminate in a necessary mind. What Haldane calls the prime thinker mm-hmm. who uh, inaugurated, who uh, jumpstarted this process of triangulation. And so I just say, well, an infinite regress of, I don't, I don't, I'm not super good with infinite regress stuff, but it seems pretty, seems pretty safe to say an infinite regress of finite minds would mean I would never get the concept of table. How would it ever reach me? You right. know, so, yeah, so that would, it would, it would never get to me. So infinite regress of contingent minds passing on concepts is out. Well, how about uh, the, the, the naturalist answer that, 
uh, our ancestors evolved and they kind of, they, they came up with words and speech and they were finally able to talk about stuff. But, but Davidson, and this is kind of the answer Davidson would give, but there's a problem that Davidson brings up for himself that in order to acquire concepts, we need uh, sufficient tools to pick out the aspect that we're talking about. And so he, it's this aspect problem without full blown uh, in the literature. Uh, who says this for, Verhegen, um, I forgot, Claudine Verhegen, um, which I don't feel bad about mispronouncing because she said no to my podcast. So is she, that's, on, is she on the floor? No, she's she's under uh, <laughs> she's under my mic. I have oh, I have a couple of books propping up my mic right now. Okay. So so she talked. She coined this term "full blown linguistic triangulation." So without the tools of language to pick out the aspect, like dogs triangulate, but. Do they have propositional content to their thoughts, right? Like, right. Like right. they don't have language to pick out. So if, if a dog's barking up the wrong tree, I can attribute that to him. But is he is he barking after a squirrel or that brown thing or that fuzzy thing or that thing that smells like that? Or, right, does he have the same concept that I have? Well, he doesn't have language. There's no way to ever tell that. Yeah. And if he, if he has a concept, is it – how did he get that concept? Is it by – uh, looking at a bunch of different squirrels and right. and abstracting squirrelness yeah. from these different instances of squirrels. Right. The big problem with that, obviously, is that in order to attend to something and pick out what's special about that thing, it seems like you're you're already you already have concepts of that thing. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. There's circularity involved there. Totally. And and, and if if you want another, if you don't already uh, uh, have this in your notes, look at Peter Geach's book, mental acts. Mm, okay. Uh, he, he just launches a devastating critique of this view called abstractionism. Yeah. Where we acquire concepts by, by mental abstraction from like a bunch of different, like observable things. Yeah. I love that point. I've, I've, I've thought of that point before. I, I think maybe John framed me that point or something, but like um, people, Kantian because they want to say that there's whether there are Kantians or not um, there you, you bring these categories to experience, but you can't derive them from experience because right. you, you already had them in order to find the, the triangle out in reality. Right. That's so, right. that's right. And, and so I think that, that they're right about that, but so innateism um, uh, kind of also fails too, because what about our ancestors? And this is a point that, that Haldane does bring up. Um, he did a great job. He did it in like five pages or something. Such a, a good job. But innateism fails too because there's concepts of like uh, rocking chairness or something like like that didn't exist before rocking chairs were uh, invented. So now yeah. anyone born afterwards just has this innate concept, or it already was a, a concept in the mind of God or something. Okay, but it's that's not plausible, and it's also not how things work in reality. Like we see that you triangulate with someone with your parent about these kind of concepts and you have a fuzzy picture that begins to sharpen. So I could do a better job probably arguing against innateism, but um, what I want to argue against, I think the most plausible one is the emergence view that emerged emerges from this historical process or uh, this uh, evolutionary process. But as Donald Davidson himself makes so clear, you need language. You don't get, the the clarity sufficient for concepts without full-blown linguistic triangulation. And so 
you need this this process of triangulation all the way back, but we are we already saw that a infinite regress is out. So we need a necessary triangulator, a, a, a necessary being, a necessary mind sufficient enough to ours to communicate with us and form concepts, um, but different than us in that it's necessary and not contingent like us. And I think that we find this in Genesis 1. And I, actually, Haldane talks about that too, which is crazy, or John 1. And we, and you know we even well, go ahead go ahead Jen the logos yeah 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 totally and we see that God you know brought all the animals uh, in front of uh, Adam and I don't want to read too much in and stretch too much but I think you could see like uh, yeah he's teaching him about reality he's he's what do we want to call this what do we want to call that and he's in this process of fixing the concepts in Adam's mind but once once one contingent mind has it that's all you need Adam can triangulate with Eve. And you can triangulate with Seth and all the way down to you and I. Mm-hmm. And languages can change. This is another part of Davidson, right? Interpretation. Once you have uh, a first language, you can interpret other languages and learn new languages. Once you have these fundamental concepts, you can you can learn new languages and stuff. But you need a first language. And humanity needs like a, a first language. So, yeah. Here's another wrinkle that you might explore. If concept formation is essentially social mm-hmm. in that, you know, you got it from someone and that person got it from someone. If you want to avoid some sort of positing some brute fact about God's concept, God just has intrinsic conceptual powers, I think is what Holden says. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you do already have resources and God being a social Dude. You caught it. So that's that's the second step of the argument, right? And that's why the, that's why I want to argue for the Trinity. Yeah. So so this this necessary triangulator, and this is kind of tricky for me um, to to wrestle through. Uh, Andrew James Anderson, I, I emailed him like a thousand times this summer, and he kept on picking. It. He he liked the first part of it, but he he kept on trying to get me to sharpen the second half. You don't want to say like the father learned something. From no, him. no, of course. And it's like no, if if he's necessary, then he's got these things already. But I'm all I want to say is that. This necessary mind, if it, if it, if he or it, whatever you want to say, like possesses the ability to triangulate with another person on a third thing, then I would want to say that it has that essentially. Otherwise, I think it would be dependent on its creation in order to do that. And it kind of seems, how yeah. would that ever get going? How would it ever ever possess right. that? So in the Trinity, we, and this is why, I like your your conception of the Trinity, we have three persons. So we have interpersonal dialogue. They're not learning concepts from each other, but they're dialoguing with each other. The father's dialoguing with the son about the spirit or the father's talking to the spirit about the son or the son mm-hmm. and they're glor- they're glorifying each other. And so they're talking about each other. So you have the first person perspective, the second person perspective, interpersonal dialogue about the third person. And the third person perspective is an objective perspective. Interesting. So, yeah. So you have the third thing, the objective mm-hmm. about like th- these two talking about a third ad intra within the Godhead. And so you have the components necessary for ad extra, this uh, triangulator to talk to another person about a third object thing, right? So you also have the sufficient conditions for persons because if you add a fourth or a fifth or a sixth person, you'd never escape the third person perspective, Mm. right? Because the third person perspective, all you need is a third person in order to have objectivity there. Mm-hmm. And so adding a fourth is is not necessary. It's you know, so the sufficient number is three. So then 
I think if this is the case, if, if my argument works, then we have a necessary and sufficient, we have an argument for the necessary and sufficient conditions for our thoughts and speech right now, which is the, the triune God. Yeah, interesting. And maybe that third person perspective that is, that's, that's guaranteed by the presence of a third person in the mm-hmm. Trinity, maybe that is maybe that is objective reality for us. Um, hmm. So you could have all sorts of intersubjective knowledge being shared between the persons of the Trinity, but that third person perspective that, that each one sort of shares that, I mean, you don't want to say that one is always outside the loop, but right. Totally. Totally. Uh, but whatever that third person perspective is that goes from, you know, from one to the other. Yeah. Maybe that is the realm of perspective that for us just represents objective reality. Yeah, that could be. I don't know. That's that just be. spitballing, yeah. No, that's cool. That, 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 could, that, could be, that could very well be. So, so basically the first half of the argument is to um, a, a necessary triangulator, a prime thinker, which could be like a, um, a functional person. And then – in order for the functional person to have the capacity to triangulate add extra, there would be three in, intrinsic persons within the functional person. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> Dude. I, and this is why it fits so well with your stuff. So when I'm reading your stuff, I'm like, this is it. This is fantastic. Finally, let's go. So I get all worked up. Uh, I love the way you think, man. It's, it's really, it's really awesome. I appreciate that. And I'm yeah. glad, like I was, again, t- super sad and terrified that Haldane got there first. But my, I think my argument is a little bit different and I, and I try to go further, right? And I've always been trying to go for the Trinity because I'm trying to I'm trying to blend together Lewis and Van Til. And one of the desiderata of Van Til is that the ontological Trinity is the necessary precondition of the intelligibility that we find in the universe. Hmm. And so that's what I'm trying to get at. We have concepts. That's how we make the, the world intelligible. And the necessary condition of these concepts is that this triune God who is three uh, persons mm-hmm. and one person. Yeah. I like, and one person <laughs> I like, yeah, very, very good. I mean, look, if you, if you got this in draft form and if you ever want to share it and get comments and feedback, yeah, yeah. To send it my way. I'd love to. Take I will. It. I will. I already, I have it. It's out for, for review. So if anyone's listening and they're, and they're reviewing, um, uh, it's not me, you know, you can still review it and, and pass it on through. Don't worry about that. Uh, no conflict of interest. So, uh, Chad, I wanted to leave people uh, with uh, a teaser on your paper on conservatism. And if, if people are friends with you on Facebook at all, they'll, they'll, they'll know that you're a conservative yourself. Um, can you just talk about that and just kind of um, you said you said it's maybe one of your most cited papers? Well, not cited, but uh, just by just by Google Analytics. You okay. know downloaded most shared things like that wow yeah it's got a ridiculous amount of of views and shares and things like that so this paper uh was invited to contribute to a book edited by bob fisher Mm -hmm. on uh, the ethical issues that come up in political disputes and i propose that hey why don't i just lay out sort of the ethical vision that conservatives have and uh, I tried to do it as as succinctly and briefly as possible to try to like say, look, here here are our core commitments. Here's here's what's informing our judgments. We're not just these callous, you know, penny pinchers who, who don't care about the plight of poor people right. or, or whatever minorities. 
No, we, we have we have an ethical vision of the universe that's informed by certain principles and, and they all hang together into this view of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I wanted to sort of present that view and say, uh, this is what conservatives believe in a nutshell. And uh, my interlocutor for well, this book, the nice thing about this book, it's a great book, is you'd have one person on one side of the issue and then they'd pair it up with the person who's on the opposite side of the issue. Yeah. So they both have their opening statements and they respond to each other. Hmm. Uh, and my interlocutor was uh, Dustin Crummett, uh, who is uh, he's a Christian philosopher, but he's progressive. Yeah. And so he wrote his defense of progressive uh, outlook and we responded to each other. And I, I think that was a pretty cool exchange. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, can can people like find that article and, and read it themselves? It's on my academia.edu page also on my field papers page okay along with my other papers but i'm i'm in the process actually of developing a website sweet that hosts my work and mo- more importantly it hosts the natural theology resources and arguments yeah that you know will will be a, a very very uh, user friendly way of navigating all of those arguments all all 150 or so yeah yeah that's sweet because um for a while there was like uh Planning as uh, what is it nineteen or so pretty good arguments? Yeah, was it was it nineteen originally? Two dozen. Oh, it was two dozen. Yeah, that's right, two dozen. So, and that was kind of floating around, and all the philosophy professors were like they had their hands on it, and then they made it into a book. And so now, you know, Chad has one up. Well, several up yeah, right. that. <laughs> so I think that'll be a huge resource for people uh, in the coming years, man. I hope so. Yeah, yeah. You put in a ton of work, so yeah, I'm going to share that, and I'm going to be looking at it too. You no, know, it's. I've gotten links. People have sent me links to like response videos already that people have made. And I watched these for a few minutes and it's just like, you know, we, Cameron and I, we opened ourselves up to this, you know, just just by teasing these arguments and not going into in-depth defenses of them. They're so easy to just dismiss. Oh, why would you think this premise is true? Or why would you think that's true? It's like we're not we're not defending these arguments here. We are you know, no way. There's no way the time wise. Yeah, we we just want to ex- like to expose the material to people who are interested and want yeah. to pursue it further. So, but yeah, I mean that it's par for the course that it was subject right. to extremely uncharitable yeah uh, critiques. Yeah. Well, and and really, I mean, the whole thing was kind of a setup to the argument from so many arguments. Right. So so if you're going to take a shot at one, then do that one. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's a great point. That's exactly right. Yeah. And then it had the added bonus of uh, I lost a whole night of sleep because I, I realized that someone else was onto my concept argument. So oh, that, that was a good time, too. Um, dude, thanks. Thanks so much. I wanted to bring up the conservative uh, conservatism paper because uh, I, th- I thought it'd be cool to show a, f- a full range. And you suggested that that was your your uh, most popular downloaded one and stuff so um dude you you can do it all man you can talk uh, alligator snapping turtles all the way up to psr and the trinity and simplicity so i really appreciate man and and i think we think along the same lines but we we got there from two probably radically different starting points but we've reached a lot of similar stuff and so i'm really uh, encouraged to see someone who's further along than me who has thought through some of the stuff that's really uh helpful shorthand for me so i don't have to do a lot of this heavy lifting myself well, let's put our heads together and, and think through yeah. more and, and uh, see if we can push further and come up with even even cooler and even better stuff. Yes, I love it, man. we got to do some kind of alligator snapping turtle argument. There, uh, yeah. there is like a teleolo- teleolo- teleological argument from like the, the vermiform and how it's 
Oh yeah, that's a yeah. Like common snapping turtle versus alligator, and somehow, if if you want to argue the common evolved to the alligator and and formed this vermiform, or somehow lost this vermiform into the common, and yeah, uh, there's some there's something there. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, All right. Um, thanks for having me on, and uh, you have such a good interview style. It's very conversational and exploratory, which I, which I like, and very relaxed. So, thanks for having me on. I love the show. Uh, wish you best. And uh, uh, yeah, I'll I'll, uh, I'll continue to, to subscribe and, and watch stuff. Very, very awesome. excited about all the content, dude. You're the man. Well, uh, we could talk about this more, and Lord willing, willing we will. Um, but my mouth is all jacked up now from talking too much, uh, so that's gonna have to do it. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God. Mm-hmm.